this is Season 1, Episode 1 of Interesting Conversations. I'm your host, Craig Burgess, and today I'm talking to a really, really interesting character. He's called Ivor Timchak, and he only asked me to introduce him by calling him one thing, a free thinker. So this is the first ever episode, and and this is how the whole thing is going to go. Basically, I sit down in a room with a really interesting person for however long we feel like sitting down for, and we just chat. We just chat about interesting stuff. This is the first ever episode. As I said, this is season one, episode one, and I'm so excited to share this with you. This has been a long time coming. I've been recording these episodes for months now, for months. And it's really good to finally see it out and to finally release it to you guys and listen to it and see what you think. That's really all I've got to say. There's nothing else to say. Let's just start the episode. Hope you enjoy it. This is Interesting Conversations. How many weeks have you Yeah, I don't know whether we should start with that one or not. Oh, actually, it's... Uh... I've got an answer, actually, so you can start with that. But, uh, <laughs> I'm glad I had a, a, I, I got sight of the questions you're going to ask, because if that had come at me straight away, it would like... Oh. Well, I was going to ask you to explain where you've got to, how you've got to where you are. Because what what are you? Are you a presentations... Uh, teacher or are you an artist or are you a caricaturist or are you a compare of better culture are you all those things yes i describe myself as a creative practitioner generally uh, my current manifestation is as a presentation skills trainer because uh, that's how i'm seeking to make the money to pay for what i need to pay for but it but that involves creativity so i'm still enjoying the creative aspect of it and also, I think I enjoy novelty. So, you know, I've been in a rock and roll band, I'm a painter, uh, do creative writing, filmmaker, etc., etc. I just enjoy playing with uh, the the format, the structure, in exactly the same way that you've turned up today with all your equipment and uh, you say, oh, if I start something, I'll do it properly. It's that kind of, well, let's play with it. Let's play with the medium. See what it's capable of, and uh, and have fun with it. That's the that's the key. And there's something really nice as well about making things. Yes, that's that, what creativity ultimately comes down to: making things. I had a client who worked in a bank um, when I was a, an illustrator. Well, I still am an illustrator, but when I was promoting the illustration, and I would produce a Christmas card for them uh, based on some of the personnel in the bank. Anyway. I delivered the uh, the cards to his house because he lived nearby and he was looking at the cards and uh, he said, you know, I'm so jealous of people like you who can, you make things, you've got something there that people can look at and appreciate. Whereas my job, it's like shuffling papers. I can't point to anything and say, I did that. That's my work, you know. And even if he could, it's like... So what, you know, it's just some numbers in a column or whatever that is uh, pushed around, so... But he could, but he could be doing that, though. He could be making things, he could be doing it as a hobby, or he'll he'll be telling himself that thing that so many people tell themselves, I'm not creative, that creativity is something that people are magically born with, that some of us are creative, like me and you, we end up falling into that creative job or that venture or whatever it may be. And then some people are just not, and some people are destined to be accountants or bankers or 
you know that kind of thing. It's by it's by design, Craig. That's that's the that's the problem. That's the tragedy that we are compartmentalized from school. You know, those who can draw a bit are encouraged. Those who are kind of struggling, oh, well, forget about that. Maybe accountancy is your thing or whatever. And so it, from school, we're immediately starting to be processed to become some kind of worker or, well, that's what you're good at. That's what you're and uh, I was a late developer when I was at school. So I, because I went to secondary school and did uh, CSEs and then the results were good enough for me to go to grammar school, do O and, o and A levels. And that was a, such an eye-opener. Because when I was at secondary school, the attitude was, you will be a tradesperson. And they treated you as such. And then when I went to grammar school, the attitude, the unspoken attitude was, you will go to university and you will go into the professions. And it's like, whoa, this is a completely different processing unit to the one I was at. It's not just about education. It's about, right, let's direct these people to being whatever. So... And because my parents were immigrants uh, from Ukraine, then, you know, I was brought up in a dual society because they spoke Ukrainian at home. I went to the Ukrainian club, blah, blah, blah. but I was also going to English schools. So I was, I was like destined to be an outsider. My, all my experiences made me an outsider looking in. And I think that's what I've, uh, I've had all my life. So all the, all the creative outlets that I've gone into has been to try and explore that that experience of being an outsider and explain what it is I'm seeing. That's what it is. It's trying to understand the thing that you're experiencing. I think that's the biggest thing about creativity. A lot of people who get into creativity are contrarians. You know, you think they, they, they don't like doing things the way everybody else tells them to do those things. No matter what it is, no, no matter what kind of creativity it is, that is the common denominator between it all but these days in modern education you you're taught not to be a contrarian you are physically taught not to rebel against anything at all unless you're in silicon valley and then it's like oh it's disruption everything's disruption and uh, so yeah yeah you're, you're physically taught through your entire school to pass exams that you really need these exams these are really important you're physically taught to wear a uniform you're physically taught to act this way turn up at this time and all you're being taught to do is become an office worker at the end of it. And I didn't really discover creativity because I didn't, I didn't really do much creativity stuff at school. I was never good at drawing. I'm still not fantastic at drawing. And I never did any kind of creative subject at school. And I only discovered it when I went to college. And then after I'd finished college, um, I did a, a HND, which is kind of half of a degree. I did half of a degree in a design course and that's when I discovered creativity really. Looking back now, I'd messed with it pretty much all my life. So I used to mess with Microsoft Publisher when I was about 10 years old, making signs and things like that. I was a really sad kid. And then I used to draw things a lot back then. I used to design my own um, video. You know when you used to have those video library cases? You know, oh, yeah, yeah. VHS. You know, ones, yeah, yeah. yeah. Those, those kind of hardback video cases that kind of used to have a, a horrible leather pattern on them I used to design on those well I used to draw on those things so looking back I had I had some kind of creativity in me pretty much all my life but I never realized it because school really and the need or maybe not the need but the want to perform at school which is just passing exams 
kind of just drills that out of you. It's what I, I talk in schools occasionally as well. I try and encourage the um, the students to to exploit the the assets that they have because schools are basically factories for crushing creativity. That's what they're designed to do. I mean, there's there's so many decades behind the the times, like you described. the The original purpose of them was to create people who could work in factories and offices, read and write, add up, basically. That's what it is. But those days are gone now. Those jobs, are, you know, robots and algorithms are taking all those jobs. So, what what it's going to have to do is to revert back to what it originally was and to become a like a dynamo for creativity. So people go to school to learn how to encourage their creativity, to exploit their creativity. But that's so many decades down down the line because it's like trying to steer a um, one of these behemoth ships. It takes so long to actually get it to, to change course that by the time you need it to... To be prepared for this new uh, era, it's it's kind of no, I'm still turning, mate. We haven't sorted it. So, but because I often get people saying to me, "Oh, you're an artist," or, "Oh, I'm not creative," and it's like the human species is defined by its creativity. Just take a look around, <laughs> you know. That's all creativity. So it's it's like saying, "Oh, I'm not human." If anyone who says I'm not creative, I'm not. You know, no, that's not. You've just been taught to say that. That's all it is. Uh, and you can rediscover your creativity. It's not hard. It's a, it's a label that you give yourself. You, you say you're not creative, or you say you're not good at maths, or you say you're not good at something, and you automatically become that. But oftentimes, these people that say they're not creative, they're actually, they'll do cross-stitch or something like that on a night, and they'll be amazingly creative. Or when they're on the phone to someone, they'll be drawing these amazing doodles. Yeah in a notebook or something like that. And they're more creative than some people who are professionally creative, but they're told, yeah, well, they tell themselves, I'm not creative. And what people forget is that the people admire what they can't do themselves. So quite often you get someone who might be good at something that comes naturally to them that they don't value because they think, well, everybody can do that, surely. But when they demonstrate it to someone else, they go, whoa, that's... You know, even someone like um, a contortionist, for example, who might who might have been supple all their life and just think nothing of it. But to other people, like that's amazing. And before they know, they think, well, actually, I could I could sell this skill, this ability, and entertain people. And then where you go, that's it. That's all you need. So on that note, on creativity and art, so we'll come to the first point that you've prepared an answer for. You've got a kind of a side project that you call This This Is Not Art. This Is Not Art Boy. This Is Not Art Boy. And you are saying there, basically, it's not art. So what is art? The premise of This Is Not Art Boy was based on the current uh, trend for conceptual art. Now, they tell us anything can be art. That's the, the, the mantra. Oh, anything can be art. Now... I'm quite a logical person and I will think this through. So I'm thinking, well, if anything can be art, then the category of art becomes meaningless, pointless. There's no point in having it. If every, you know, this cup I'm holding, if that's art or whatever, why have this definition of art? So that's when this is not art boy. 
came up. Um, so I dress up as an avant-garde artist. I've got a placard, basically. It's the placard that does it. It just says, this is not art. And I, I turn up at art galleries or sculpture parks or wherever and just walk around with it and engage people in conversation. That's the main thing. And, and, and so just, we just work through, well, what, what is art? What, how do we define it? And why is it of value? If it is of value, if everything. So it's just a game now is, um, you know, a game of ideas, which is kind of, it's gone too far, I reckon. And a lot of the public, they feel that they, they don't have the authority, the knowledge, the expertise to criticize anything in an art gallery. So they, you know, they, they're told, oh, this is great art. And they look at it, totally bemused and thinking, my God, see. But they're not prepared to say, no, that's not. And, and my main beef is that these municipal art galleries, they're funded by the public. They're from the taxpayers' money. Now, my argument is, if they're, if, if they're funded by the taxpayer and the taxpayer is, the majority of the taxpayers are thinking, I don't like this. I don't like it in there. And the, and the sole purpose of this art gallery is to make me feel good, then it's not working. It's not fit for purpose. Just because a small minority saying, oh no, this is the cutting edge of... Well, we don't want cutting edge. We want stuff that we can enjoy. So if, it's, if that means representational art, that's what we want to see. And the... So the, don't get me wrong. I I'm not against the avant-garde stuff. That's absolutely fine if it's privately funded. If somebody wants to pay for that themselves, that's okay. Because some of, some of the ideas are great. I, enjoy, I thoroughly enjoy them. But the issue I have is that, no, it's publicly funded. And most of the people I speak to go into an art gallery and think, in fact, they don't even go into an art gallery anymore because they know it's a waste of time. They won't see anything that they'll like. So there needs to be someone on the panel who represents the public. So whoever curates the art gallery needs to have this countervailing voice that says, no, I don't understand that. I don't like it. I, we, I want this. And then they have to come to some compromise. But does that then make art only work for the lowest common denominator? Is that a good thing, that art should be working for the lowest common denominator? You're working on the assumption that the, the representative, representative of the public has complete say. No, they're merely a force within the curation of the art gallery. So they have to compromise. One of your other questions in, your, in that sheet, uh, Craig, was what's wrong with the world? Uh, and it leads on nicely to this is what's wrong with the world. When you've got a system where you've got a dominant force that, that makes most of the decisions in the process, that's when you get problems because it's biased. The successful systems... Societies are the ones where you have opposing forces that are equally as strong. So in our society, you're supposed to have the, uh, the political aspect of society, but you've also got the judiciary, the law, that's supposed to be above all else. So the, the theory is anyone breaks the law, they have to deal with the law. Well, of course, we can see now that that doesn't apply. All the bankers who broke the law... They're not in jail. And the the law doesn't want to jail them. It's it's afraid of jailing them. The argument is oh, if you start jailing them, then all you know the economy will collapse and blah, it'll all end in whatever justification they come up with, 
it's clearly not working. So the the fallout of that is you've got a, a section of people who intuitively understand they are above the law and they can do whatever they want. Now, that's when you start to get problems. And then also you've got the vast majority of the population that feel like they've got no say, feel like they've got no say, feel like there's no point in them doing anything, no point in voting, for example. No point in visiting art galleries because they don't understand it, they don't get any of it because they can't change the status quo because the status quo is the status quo. Exactly. So the situation gets worse. The fewer people who go to the art galleries, then the curators think, oh, we can just do whatever we fancy and we'll just put up with it. So the system just gets worse and worse. And as the... um, in the society we've got where the inequality is increasing, it's just it's just going to end in disaster. And actually, the art gallery is the perfect um, analogy for modern society. So when we think about art galleries, we think the only people who go to art galleries are usually artists or art appreciators. And then the same kind of things in societies, particularly if we think of politics, we think of politics, the only people who are into, quote-unquote, into politics are people who are, who are passionate about politics when really politics affects everybody on this planet, not just the UK, but it affects everybody on the planet. But because of the way politics is designed and the same way that art is designed, the the normal person, just the guy in the middle of the street, can't get involved with politics. You're right, actually, Craig. It is a good analogy because in the past, politics was, you know, populated by people who'd worked you know, they'd, they'd worked in industry or they'd, uh, they'd worked in factories and so they'd seen that, that aspect of it and they thought, well, I want to change this because it's in unjust or whatever. And then they go into politics as a result of that. Whereas now you've got career politicians who from university think, I'm just going to do politics. I've never actually had a job, never held one down, you know, it's, or any job I've had is just PR working with, you know. And then you've got this, this entire section of privilege which is such a, a pernicious aspect to society. Everything that they feel they're entitled to was down to privilege. So, you know, they, they, they know pe- their parents know people who they can approach and say, oh, can my son or my daughter wants a job in, in pot? Can you give them a PR job here? But, so they, they just walk into this job, et cetera, et cetera. And it's all, it's all given to them. So they, they, it's a game. And they think, right, uh, now I'm going to do politics in itself. And art is pretty much the same. The, a lot of the artists, the conceptual artists, in my mind, have thought, oh, I see. Art is now, it's a marketing game. So it's a case of how can I market myself the most in the, in the most clever way that attracts the attention of the elite who think, yeah yeah, I don't, I don't really understand what's going on there. So I'm impressed by it. So I'm going to talk about whatever. Actually, a lot of them are probably think I can write about that. So that that's going to help my career as well as, you know, an art critic or what. So you get this, this silo of people who just think, okay, I've understood now how the, the, the art is marketed. It's a game. Um, I remember reading about, uh, Damien Hurst and, um, one of my friends who was, was an artist, he, he knew people who were at, I think it was Goldsmiths College where he was. And the lecturer there was, kept telling his students to be as cynical as, po- as possible. That's how you, you penetrate the art market. And clearly, Damon Hurst has thought, I get it. I'm going to make my artwork marketing 
art. I've understood how it works. This is how to, to access it. This is how to make it work. And it's not dissimilar from the, uh, the people in Silicon Valley who were thinking, right, what app should I come up with that's going to disrupt the, the market? And, sim- you know, that's, that's probably how Damien Hurst thought, right, this, is, this will disrupt the art market to such an extent that it will get the attention and blah, etc., etc., etc. So it's a game. People are thinking, how can I game the system? Uh, and that's where most of the problems start. I remember, um, in fact, recently, I presume you're familiar with Bill, Bill Hicks. Um, I love him. He's one of my favourite ever comedians. I just love listening back to his old tapes. And I was listening to one of his shows just a couple of days ago. And he, he, come, he comes onto the stage. This is quite a popular thing for stand-ups to do anyway. But he comes onto the stage and he goes, Oh, by the way, if you're in marketing or advertising, kill yourself. And everybody and everybody starts laughing, and he says, "No, really, kill yourself." And and he doesn't say anything else. He le- he leaves it for a minute. Well, not minute, but thirty seconds or so. And everyone's tittering still. And then he goes, "Yeah, people are going to think that I'm just doing this as a marketing ploy." All those marketing people in that crowd are going, "Oh yeah, Bill is going for the anti-marketing coin. It's a really good dollar." Uh, and he, go, he goes through all this and he, he's, he's talking about how everything, basically everything that he does is considered marketing these days. But on the flip side, you could argue that everything you do is marketing. And It's, it's, it's funny you should mention Bill Hicks because uh, the, the latest short story I've written involves him. Because uh, I'm obsessed with new technology, as you might have uh, discovered. And so I was playing with the idea of, of avatars now that they can create and they've they've had actors in films who, who, who've long since been dead but they've resurrected them for a scene in the film now it's not you know with a stretch of imagination you think well actually they could they could probably make entire feature films with enough computing power that has some dead actor playing a part that they just programmed in say this do this but and there they are doing it so the the, the, the story uh, sort of extends that idea to to the stage where these creators, I mean, because you've got machine learning algorithms now, haven't you, that are becoming creative. They can write music. They can write stories. So you get to a stage where just the algorithms recreate a Bill Hicks show and they've got the technology to resurrect Bill Hicks in a new show, even though he's been dead so many years. It's like, and uh, it, the, the, the algorithms could write the, the, the material so it's actually self, you know, it's uh, referential and and takes the takes the piss out of the whole market. I just think Bill Hicks would love that idea. The fact that uh, the only thing that humans are left to do is to market the product and consume it. That's the kind, that's all. That's how the, we're going to end our days on this planet. So uh, yeah, it's, it's it's interesting that you mentioned him. It's come full circle with actually that's probably going to happen. Well, they actually did it. They did it. I don't know if you've seen the latest Star Wars episode 57 or whatever it is now right. Force Awakens they did it in that I'm, I'm not a big Star Wars fan so I can't remember the name of the guy they did it in that and he was the, the Hammer Horror actor wasn't he the, yeah. was it Lee or somebody S- uh, something like that yeah somebody told me they've, they've already done it they've resurrected someone they recreated there. him and I watch quite a lot of films and they've done it in quite a few films sort of in the last five years to varying levels of success but I must admit in The Force Awakens it looked pretty impressive this guy has been dead quite a while yeah. and they resurrected him and it really did look like him. Because the, cause the uh, I played on the idea that with technology advancing, I mean, you've got 4K T- 
TV now, and I think the Japanese have actually brought out a nine, a 8K or something TV. So the resolution is incredible. So if you've got existing footage of people at such a high resolution, and you've got these computers getting more and more powerful, you know, it's, it stands to reason that they think, okay, we'll just program that in. There'll be some kind of uh, template or whatever. We'll get all the points that we need to reference, blah, blah, blah. It'll extrapolate from that. We can just do... And before you know it, it'd be indistinguishable from the real act. I mean, actors must be wetting themselves at what, uh, you know, because they'll be out of a job. Like every, all the doctors and lawyers who are being threatened by the algorithm, the actors are, you know, they're being threatened as well. Or another way to look at it is they could be in five films at once. They could, they could have five films out in the cinema right now, all with them in it. All they have to do is motion capture the face once and that's it. Because I was thinking, what is the legal aspect of it? Because they're creating something from that's new, isn't it? It's, it's, it's an art. Is it an artwork? Is it a drawing? Is it a puppet? What is it? So the actors themselves probably won't have a claim on it. Well, they do. They do it quite a lot in video games. They've done it a lot in, uh, particularly. You've probably heard of Call of Duty. Yeah. Now, Call of Duty is such a big money spinner. It's the biggest the biggest money spinner in video games and video games is the biggest entertainment industry in the world it makes billions every year and every year in Call of Duty they've taken to bring in real actors into those films so they they basically just motion capture these actors faces and put them directly in the game so they, I imagine it's the same kind of thing that they get paid an acting fee maybe even a, li- a likeness fee or something like that I don't know and obviously they record the voice for that as well so it's probably a little bit similar to an animated film or, I don't know. But, but you know, the, the, the computers are so powerful that they could sample the voice and think, oh, we, we can get the voice to say anything we want with any expression. And we don't need them. That's that's the key. They don't need them anymore. Uh, so that, I thought that's a, that's a really interesting idea to, uh, to pursue. Have you heard of the idea of the Uncanny Valley? No. It's, it's a thing that's talked about in um, in CGI, and, and this is a thing where people get so lifelike. It's when you computer-generate a human being, or when you make um, a doll or something like that. You cross, you cross what's called the uncanny valley, where if you make something so realistic, the human brain actually knows that it's not real because it looks too real. All right. And, and that's why... Um, in animated films, for example, they never go down the path of making people look 100% lifelike because if you go too far, they don't quite look human because they're not human and human faces can detect that and we actually become disgusted by it. And that is bizarre. I, and actually we become scared by it and we don't like it. You know, we become repulsed by it. So that's why so many... It's, in terms of animated films, for example, you know, things like Toy Story and Shrek and all those modern animated films, Despicable Me, then they've, they've got the computing power to make these things look real. But they don't. Because if they go too far... too freaky. It's too freaky. Yeah. And, and it's for kids as well, usually. So they don't want to freak kids out. It's, I found it really interesting. So I think we're probably going to get to a point where, yes, we could probably motion capture actors. But... Unless, well, computing power is going to con- consistently keep getting better and better. I think we'll get to a point where a computer can't replicate a human 100%. It might be able to replicate a human 
But that's why in The Force Awakens, that new Star Wars film, the guy in it, whatever he's called... Christopher Lee, I think it is. Christopher Lee. I think it's Christopher Lee. I think you've got it right there. That's why he doesn't say much and he doesn't do much and he just stands there (laughs) because they can't make him look convincing enough because we've all got little tics and foibles and we all move around and we've all got facial features that you just cannot replicate in a computer because the computing power alone to just replicate... It's like, the, it's, like, it's like the genuine smile, isn't it? There's hard scientific evidence that demonstrates that we can unconsciously detect a genuine smile from a fake one. And they've worked out it's something to do with the muscles around the eyes that with a genuine smile, they're activated. And we're so sophisticated at reading faces that we can tell that's a genuine smile. Whereas a really great actor, if they're not happy and they're just trying to smile... People can, no, that's not, there's something not quite right about that one. So it doesn't surprise me that um, that's how it, you know, I mean, the brain is, is the most complex invention in the universe. So they say. People still don't understand. We've, we've got all this technology and all this research and we still do not understand the full complexity of the brain, what it's capable of. And I, I listened to another podcast, you might have heard of him called Joe Rogan. Um, it is, he commentates on UFC as a comedian as well as an American comedian, and he's got a really popular podcast. Something that he always talks about. At the this, min- this will become a popular podcast, Craig. You're doing a great <laughs> job. Something that he always talks about on on his podcast at the minute. He's mega into health stuff as well. He talks about stem cell research a lot. Oh, the CRISPR thing. Oh, that is frightening. The and he's actually had stem cell surgery to completely repair his shoulder. So they took, um, I think this took stem cells from a placenta for him and it completely 100% has repaired his shoulder. He, he had uh, ligament damage and all kinds of buildup of all kinds of damage in his shoulder and now it's completely like new. That is such a Pandora's box. In fact, there was a story recently about where they've started to um, edit the the genome or whatever um, as an experimental kind of research thing anyway it, it was it was a, it was a news item and the guy that they were interviewing uh, he didn't he actually volunteered that don't worry this isn't going to lead to designer babies it's nothing he volunteered it now reading between the lines Craig you and I know that means it's going to become designer babies the fact that he had to sort of start going well if it's there what do humans do? Or, you know, they just cannot help themselves and think, we've got to investigate that. We've got to experiment with it. Come on. Well, if if you or I had the technology to do that, you'd do it, wouldn't you? Yeah. No matter what mor- morals you've got, you, you do it yourself. You you make something or whatever and you think, right, what can I do next with this? We're always thinking that. We always want progress as human beings. So you just know that if the technology is there and the brain power is there to achieve it, it's going to be done. That's why the Large Hadron Collider was created, because you thought, hey, what would happen if this, let's win this? I mean, there were even fears that it might, you know, create a, a black hole or something that would swallow the Earth. It were these were genuine concerns that people said, well, you're dealing with the unknown. We and don't know what's going to happen. And they still did it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they still are. They're still, you know, firing these, because uh, you see, Actually, 100%, yeah, because they were taking years and years, weren't they, to get it to a... Yes, it's it's 100% now. Right. So they're smashing things left, right and centre and uh, going, ooh, ah, that's interesting. Yeah, that's the perfect example. They knew that they could potentially swallow the world 
So the world that they're sat on now, the Earth, they could potentially swallow the Earth and they still made it. I remember reading about the Manhattan Project when they were creating the atomic bomb. And one of the concerns that the scientists had was that there was a potential for the bomb to ignite the atmosphere. Because one of the physicists was told, go away and work out what what the likelihood is of the atmosphere catching catching a light and just spreading around the world. So he had to sit down and actually, you know, using physics or the mathematics that he had, and he came back and said, it's unlikely. He's not, uh, it's not going to... So they went ahead and, you know, built it and dropped it. So, um, yeah, they... At least they were kind of had that, that sort of foresight to think, actually, better just check that we're not assuming stuff too much here and uh, we're not unleashing something that we can't control. That kind of leads to one of my points that I want to talk about. I watched a fascinating film the other night. I love films. I watch loads of films, but it's rare that you see a film that really makes you think. I watch a lot of films for kind of escapism. You know, I watch all kinds of films, uh, good films, bad films, but finding intelligent films, I often find is really difficult. Um, And I watched a film called The Stanford Prison Experiment. I don't know if you've seen it. Is that the famous experiment where some students were told to be guards and other students were told to be prisoners? That's exactly it. And the the film is a dramatisation of that actual study. And so they they took, I think it was 12 students or something like that, 12 university students from America. And they, some was guards, some was prisoners, like you said. And to pick the guards or the prisoners, they flipped a coin. That was it. So the idea is it's completely random who ends up being a guard and who ends up being a prisoner. And the results of it led me on to read the book. And the book's called The Lucifer Effect. Uh, I forgot the name of the author, but the book is brilliant as well. And the film really makes you think, because these these are intelligent people. These are intelligent young people going to Stanford, so that well-rounded individuals, and they're dropped into an environment where they're given effectively unlimited power over another human being, in this case about six human beings. And nearly every guard, apart from one of the guards, turns out into a monster, Basically. Yeah, they had, they had to stop the experiment, didn't they? Because they, they were just terrified of the way it was going. So it was like, let's pull the plug on this. The experiment was meant to last 14 days and it lasted six. And what they even discovered in those six days is the people running the experiment even started to get a little bit evil and started to think, well, let's see how far this goes. No, let's not step in. Let's see what happens next. And the film really kind of brings all that to life. And it shows the guys running the experiment as well sat there watching really intriguingly about the kind of the abuses that these guys are going through that these these random guys and it got me thinking about this whole idea of evil we always think about evil and things like that but what this book proposes and we touched on it before about systems is that when you when you're born obviously you're a blank slate and then when you get older no i wouldn't say that but anyway let's carry on (laughs) (laughs) we'll come back to that so you're born and you're you're neither good or evil, um, and this, or at least he thinks that. And then in, in his book and in all his research, because he's studied evil, basically the the things that evil people do, murderers, uh, dictators, things like that. He's studied the idea of evil his entire career as a professor, and what he's concluded is that systems is what makes people evil. So there may be somebody at the top of it who invents the system. But everybody underneath the system is merely following a procedure. And the fact that they're following a procedure lets them kind of 
come away from the idea of being evil. They may, they may not even realize that they're being evil or the fact that they've got power, uh, you know, power hungry. They, they, because they've got power, they turn evil because they know they've got 100% power over somebody. And I just found it's, often, it's often referred to as the, um, the banality of evil. Because people think what they do, it's just banal. I'm just following order or I'm just part of... The, so it's nothing to do with me. Just one caveat there, uh, Craig, because it, it, it was an American experiment. And in fact, nearly all the experiments in the 70s and 80s that were supposed to give insights into human behaviour were American. And the vast majority of the people involved in the experiments were students studying psychology at American universities. Now, a lot of them have been discredited. It's been discovered that Americans are weird. <laughs> no, genuinely, it's, it's actually um, an acronym that it stands for something. But they've realised the American society is not representative of the rest of humanity. So a lot of the uh, actual um, experiments and trials were, were unrepresentative and have been discredited. So uh, it's just worth bearing in mind that... Um, it is an interesting point, though, because if you look at America as a wider society, they have, you know, people always talk about gun laws. They have one of the biggest murder rates in 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 a decent-sized country. And when you compare it to Canada, they've got nearly the same gun laws their their gun law uh, their murder ratio to the amount of people who live there is vastly lower than America, and a lot of people can't understand that. Why are Americans so damn violent? It's not only that, Greg. I I heard a talk given by this woman who was describing the incarceration rate of countries, and she had this graph of the you know the per head of population of a society, how many what percentage was in jail. And so there are all the countries in Europe and the world, and then there was America at the end. And it was literally off the scale. She said, this isn't even the top of the, the, the graph. I couldn't fit it on because it's, it's so far out there. Now, just that one graph was like, there's something going on in America that isn't right. You know, it was... So, I mean, I've, I've since read that actually it was part of the, the slave um, emancipation, that the... A lot of the slaves were then put into prison. A lot of freed slaves were put into prison as um, uh, as workers. So actually, their prison system isn't a prison system. It's a it's it's, it's slavery. It's basically free labour because all the prisoners do do work. So it's kind of that that sort of went somewhere to explaining why it's so far off the scale. But there are so many other examples that you can pull out to demonstrate how America is not representative of other societies. I mean, the fact that it's the one sort of developed Western nation in the world that doesn't have any health care for, for the population. And not, the, not really much welfare care at all. Exactly. It's like there's so many exceptions to them that it's like you can't point to anything that the Americans do and say that is representative of the rest of um, humanity. So I, I, mean, I take your point. There is that, that sort of generalisation that, you know, absolute power corrupts absolutely. Uh, but the way the, the American society is set up, it's like, if it was an experiment done in other, I mean, that's how science works, isn't it? You have to verify that discovery by running the trial somewhere else. And if it verifies the study from the, the results from the study of the first study, then you can say, okay, this is representative. So as far as I know, it's not been, uh, it's not been carried out much. I imagine most people would react in a similar situation though. In terms of if you were put in a situation as a guard, 
I, I would challenge that to a certain extent because one of the reasons why the uh, experiments were questioned was because the a lot of their experiments were that relied on money payment to motivate people. Right, do this and we'll give you, you know, so many dollars for doing whatever. And what they discovered was when they tried to replicate the experiment with other cultures, it didn't work. Because in other cultures, if you, if someone says, I will give you a hundred dollars for doing this, the people wouldn't, was like, no, actually, I, I, I'm not interested. Because in their culture, if someone does a favor for them, they're indebted to them. And it's expected that they will have to reciprocate at some point with another favour. And they and that was equivalent to the money as well. So even though they said, no, we'll give you $100, no questions asked, their, their cultural inheritance said, no, 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 this comes with strings. And so they would shy away from it. Whereas Americans would think, $100 free, yes, I'll go for that. This is a very crude explanation of what I've, I've kind of read up. But So it, it demonstrated, no, actually, societies... Uh, behave differently and and actually your the cultural context is crucial to how people behave i'm not denying that you know if, again if you put someone in charge of someone as long you can do whatever you want then most people would say okay well I can, I'll, I'll just if i can get away with it i will but i, I would the, the the goodness in me says no there's probably some people who would think no i'm not i'm not getting involved in this i'm not doing it well there's other examples obviously nazi germany and rwanda as well it's two societies that are completely different to each other that are not american that managed to massacre millions of people Uh, rwanda wasn't millions i think it was hundreds of thousands but in rwanda at the start of it uh, the two tribes one tribe set on another i can't remember the names of them now hutu and tutsi that's it um one tribe set on the other tribe and they killed three hundred thousand people in three months i i read about the, the context of that massacre and again, context is absolutely crucial in all of this. And what, when you, when you read it, it's actually, it would been, it'd been building up for years. And the problem was, uh, overpopulation and too few resources. That's what set off this powder keg. And because the, one of them was in the minority, I'm not sure if it was the Tutsis or the Hutu, but had most of the power that exacerbated it. It was like the, the inequality was greater as a result, but it was the, it was a fight for resources ultimately. And, uh, and so that's why it exploded. So it was really interesting reading about the context of why it, not just, because sure, you can look at the data and think that's horrible. Why did these people do this? But when you realize, oh, actually that's, yeah, there was all this going on. There was that going on, but yeah, it's never, it's never black and white. That's the, no, that's no, it's not. It really interests me. The, the kind of the thing about evil I, th- I think it probably stems from my mum used to watching loads of horror films when I was younger so I've watched horror films all my life and she used to watch loads of documentaries about serial killers and I've I've read all sorts of things like that and there's a very famous quote from Shakespeare uh, I, I paraphrase it's something about there is nothing is good or bad only thinking makes it so and I thought that is such a profound statement because you use the word evil now, everyone will have a different interpretation of that word, depending on their background or their experiences or whatever. It's like, you know, what is art? How long you got? What is evil? How long you got? It's exactly the same. So, and, and the, also the age in which you're operating in, you know, we view slavery from 
100 odd years ago, that was evil. But at the time, people didn't think, you know, the the uh, President Lincoln, whatever, he had slaves. You know, people just accepted it. That's what he did. And some people might have even looked after their slaves quite well because it was their property. So it made sense to look after your own, you know, it, there's all these kind of... And if, uh, and if we go further back, British Empire, for example, we, the British Empire was, you know, we were mass murderers. We were tromping around the entire globe, killing everybody. But it, it, it was good at the time. It, uh, a Napoleon quote this time, um, history is a set of lies agreed upon. So sure, our propaganda says imperialism, that was a good thing. And all the benefits that we enjoy in terms of our prosperity down to imperialism, you know, colonialism, all this, the slave trade, the drug trade that we imposed on the child, etc., etc. There's so many crimes that were committed. In fact, I had a, an interesting discussion with a friend of mine about how far do you go back in the past to say sorry or to pay reparations so, like, the, the Germans paid reparations for the crimes of the Nazis. And then there are people who are wanting an apology for some of the crimes of the UK to acknowledge that, yes, it was a crime, the, the slave trade or whatever. Uh, so it's kind of, well, how far back do you go, that, that you apologise for? Uh, do you go back thousands of years? Is that, you know, so it's a really difficult one to answer. Especially when, like you said, when you consider some of the things that happened at the time were the norms, were the social norms. You can't really, no matter how horrifying those norms were, they were social social norms that the entire or most of the population agreed on. So how do you apologise for that, especially if you're looking 200 years down the line when nobody around that time is still alive? It's people in the modern day, apologising for something that they obviously find horrifying now. This is this is the thing that really sticks in my craw, though, Craig, is that you've got these governments who are kind of talking about the past crimes and stuff. But of course, you just you just look at the news today and they're still committing the same crimes in a slightly different form. So even though they're acknowledging, oh, well, there might have been crimes in the past, they're still not acknowledging actually what we're doing today. Equal, I mean... We were talking about getting off milk and dairy products, whatever. In the, the future, we'll look back at the way we had these industrial farms, these intensive... I think that was that's as bad as slavery. You know, they're still living creatures, abusing them in this way. Not, it'll be exactly the same, but the context will have changed. They say, how could people... You know, the, the banality of evil. How could people buy the bacon when these these pigs were so intelligent, almost human-like in their emotions? Uh, how, how did it happen? And yet everyone today, you know, has probably had uh, bacon or eats it. I mean, I, hands up, mea culpa, I still eat meat. But every time I eat it, I think, you know, I, sh- I should be vegetarian, really. I can't, I can't, I can't justify eating perpetrating this this crime because that's um, that's what it is hmm. let's come to some of your tweets okay. <laughs> I, I follow you on twitter and some of your tweets are fascinating and i think we, we probably have to give them what's the word i'm looking for we probably have to give them a little bit of a pinch of salt because context is key. Context <laughs> is key. These are tweets. These yeah. are things that you, I imagine, just randomly think about and then just tweet immediately, like we all do with Twitter. And you also put Freethinker on Twitter 
you, as your profile, you put free thinker, free thinker, which I find really interesting as well because the the idea of having a thought and it being free to be out there, no matter what it is, I think that's really powerful. I think we could live in a much better society if everybody was free to think whatever they wanted to think and have intelligent discussions and debates about whatever they believe. That's the key part. It's not just having, well, think whatever you want. It's a case of but having it discussed and have other ideas presented for or against. So it's this unwillingness to even consider. Uh, and Actually, one of the tweets was about this, this girl I was speaking to about the, um, the Brexit vote. You know, she was a Leave voter. Uh, and it was apparent that it was, she was working purely on emotion. There was no logic at all in, and she didn't have any data. She, you know, it was purely an emotional response. So she, even though I tried to sort of say, well, what about this or about this? When people work from an emotional base, they don't listen to argument. That's well, not how it works. And when you read about psychology, the way that people develop their opinions is they think something and then back, find evidence to back up their opinion. So Yes, they're cherry-picking the data just to support their, their belief. And it's really difficult for anybody to not do that. I, I, tr- I try really hard not to do that, but it is really difficult. It is, it is. Because I've, I've been occasions where someone's presented some data that goes against my core belief or in fact I'll give you an example uh, somebody because I go on about the uh, growing inequality in society somebody tweeted about it and said you do realise inequality is falling globally and I was like what? damn you know but but then again um, it's like it's, it's true globalisation has benefited so many people people in the third world generally the Chinese they've been raised out of poverty they're now experiencing uh, some prosperity they're, they're pretty much the global power they get in there whereas we in the in the uh, affluent western world where we've suffered we're the small minority that has suffered from globalization so it's a case of well who who do we who do we go for the majority or the small minority us because it's us no, actually, we don't, we don't agree with that. So it's it's a really tough one. So when people present you with ideas that um, that contradict what you've believed, or this data that suggests, oh, actually, it's it's like a physical exercise, isn't it, to think I have to accept this on the terms that it's offered, and to now reassimilate my beliefs around it. How does that? Affect- well, you, your beliefs are part of your identity, yeah. and and if you if you believe something for any period of time, 20 years or something, you've always believed something and suddenly you discover that that's not true. That changes your identity and everything you've been saying for 20 years has been absolute bollocks. This is why technology is such a threat to humanity. Driverless cars. There's millions of people who are employed as drivers currently. Millions. Now, that when you say to them, well, what do you do? I'm a driver. That is part of someone's identity. It's like, it's a classic... Um, study about unemployed people, part of the problem or the vast majority, the great majority of the problem is that they, they've lost their identity. Well, what do I do? Who am I? How, what's my status now in society? And with, with technology come on as it is and people, so many people thrown out of work, but you're talking about the professions, lawyers, they're prime people to, because it's all about analysing data and, and showing, oh, there's a precedent here. Well, algorithms can do that just like that. Uh, doctors as well, GPs. That's again data, and as it will, on my experience, this looks like such and such. Is it? How can I verify? 
date, you know, guys to do that. So when you've got a, a huge swathe of society who don't have identity, what are you going to do? That's when you start fermenting revolution and, uh, and disruption. But in terms of the data thing, the data, the data thing's really interesting as well because not only can you find any data to back up your point of view, no matter how radical or how offensive or how benign, whatever it is, not only can you find data to back that up, the data that you're using, that you use to back up your point, may not be correct. Because in terms of science, for example, they argue that nothing's ever correct and it's it's just the most correct thing of the time. So, Or that works, so you can actually demonstrate, you know, actually for your acknowledged gravity, exactly. you can do this. And if we if we come back to the Brexit thing, if we come back to the Brexit thing and talk about the data behind that, and if you really wanted to make an informed decision about Brexit, that was difficult. That was really, really difficult. Because on the one side, you had people like Boris Johnson and the Leavers telling us, we're going to give £350 million back to the NHS every week and we're going to make the world amazing and everything is going to be better when we leave Brexit. Boris Johnson, by the way, is a perfect example of someone just playing at politics. Yeah, he's a perfect career politician. But you had that one side that was being really positive that you want to believe in. And then you had the other side, the the uh, Remainers that were saying, look, it's a really bad idea to leave the EU. This is not the right time to do it. We're going to, our economy is going to suffer. Everybody's going to suffer if we leave. But I, I always remember this. I always remember it when I was watching one of the debates and uh, was it Michael Gove who said it? I can't remember, but somebody said... We're sick of listening to the experts. It was Gove, yeah. <laughs> we, we're sick of we've the experts. We've had enough of experts. Yeah. What do the experts know? And how, Let idiots run the show. And I, and I was flat. Idiots have had their time. Now it's idiots. Uh, sorry, experts have had their time. Now it's idiots who want to run the show. I, I was flabbergasted by him saying that. Not just the fact that he said it, but the fact that everybody went, yeah, 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 that's correct. Let's, let's yeah, no, let's not listen got, to experts anymore. And of course it's personified now with Trump, isn't it? Yeah. The stuff he, I mean, he contradicts himself constantly. And the press, as far as I can, I just kind of, oh, do we report this? Or It's like it's gone beyond parody now. Yeah. We're in really dangerous territory. Nobody knows what the truth is. Nobody's prepared to say that's wrong or that is illegal. It's like, okay, um, anything goes then, doesn't it? Well, tr- well, Trump was inaugurated and he, and he lied. It was a lie. He lied about his crowds. He said those crowds were a certain size and the entire rest of the press was telling him, no, Mr. Trump, that wasn't correct. But he was adamant. And he's either playing an amazing game, he's either way more intelligent than you or I, or he's just an idiot. I don't know which one it is. Often they go together, I find, (laughs) Grace. But yeah, he's the perfect example of what is truth. And the, the thing about fake news, I think the fake news thing has become so big Globally, since Trump's talking about fake news, fake news, anything he doesn't like is fake news. That's right. But it's become to the point now, actually, where Facebook have implemented things into their platform to get rid of quote unquote fake news. They call it fake news. So he invented this term fake news that, yeah, uh, fake news has existed for, forever. Um, well, it used to be called propaganda in the past, yeah, didn't it? Yeah, so. or, or the Daily Mail. But, <laughs> but he's branded this idea of misinformation and although a lot of the stuff that he says is fake news is not fake news he's branded the idea of misinformation or propaganda and now everybody uses that term 
in kind of uh, in kind of a a way to say that the press is wrong and what he's doing what Trump is really effectively doing is what dictators always do. They try and beat down the press. They get the press to a point where nobody believes what enemies the press... Enemies of the people. Yeah, they make the press the enemies of the people, even though the press... Or the are, judges, the enemies of the people. Yeah, the Daily Mail even, <laughs> even though the press are there to hold the people in power to account. And he's, allegedly. Yeah. Allegedly. And he's very effectively beating that down and grinding that down to the point where he's saying, look, I'm right. It doesn't matter. I'm the president. I'm right. And that that is very dangerous territory. But just to come back to the Brexit thing, about the experts thing, and about the thing, the the, the whole campaign for the Leavers side, and whether, whether you're a Remain or Lever, it doesn't really matter, but the whole campaign about the Leavers side was that we're going to give money back to the NHS. We're going to give £350 million back to the NHS every week. They came out, gave that number officially uh, as part of a way for people to vote to leave the European Union. And the day that people voted to leave the European Union, Nigel Farage went on this morning or whatever it was, and they said, can you confirm that we're going to be giving £350 million back? And he said no. He said that was just a... Uh, that a was lie. Just, that was just a lie to yeah, get people to vote. It was <laughs> a lie. But he didn't get held to account. Boris Johnson didn't get held to account. Any part of the leaving campaign did not get held to account for those bare-faced lies this that is, they the, were telling. This is going back to my thing about you've got to have accountability in a, pro, in, a, in a society, in a system. If you don't have it, this is what you end up with. So there should have been somebody, like whether it was the press or some other body, that said, you've lied and with these consequences. Therefore, you have to be held to account and punished or, or fight or whatever but there isn't that and so you've got a society that is unbalanced you've got a an elite that is is making all the decisions running the show however they they see fit and because i was i had quite a few conversations with people about uh, a hung parliament uh, and a coalition and all this kind of thing by now, the way I, I called the hung parliament on twitter a year before it happened good man <laughs> well i think a hung parliament is is a good thing and it's one of the reasons why I support the EU. Because if you've got a sovereign nation that thinks, right, we can make the decisions ourselves. Actually, it's just the elite again in that nation who are actually making the decisions. And there's no one to oppose them. They think, right, well, we'll make this decision. When you start to get a group of people who are equally looking after their own interests... If somebody decides, like, for example, uh, Trump withdrawing from the Paris Accord, right? No, actually, we want to pollute as much as we want because <laughs> it's good for our economy. Yeah. Now, if you're in, a, in a, um, a group of people who think that isn't going to work well for us overall, uh, so we're going to have to compromise, we will have to sign up to this thing because we all benefit. As soon as you get someone who cuts loose and say, well, I'm not going to, I'm not going to abide by that rule, then you start to get this domino effect. Another other countries think, well, well, we're not going to abide by it either. We're going to pollute as much as we can. And before you know it, you've got this runaway effect and boom, it's all over. So that's why I think why we need a global government is the, is the logical conclusion. You need somebody that says, right, well, we need to assess the impact of this on a global scale because we've got globalisation, but no one's policing it. But in, in the global government, the New World Order and the Illuminati and the, the scary the well, scary controversies that people don't want. No, we haven't got a global organisation. That's my point. We need 
to say, right, we will appoint... I mean, the EU was kind of an indication of this is how it would work. It's not perfect by any means, but the EU was created to avoid conflict. People forget it was as a result of the Second World War. They thought, how can we avoid this happening in the... Right, let's start this union so that we're less inclined to... But even with the EU, you got that stuff in Yugoslavia even. So I can imagine if everyone's independent again well we want our own interests we and you've got right-wing governments in there right well we'll fight to defend our borders etc etc people forget that you know you, you only need one generation to go and it's like people have to relearn all the mistakes of of the past so, i mean it, a global government isn't going to happen it's just you know it, we're so primitive in our behavior we haven't got the uh, facilities to be able to to manage that mm. to do it I think it's a great idea, but alongside having a global government, I think the idea of technocrats and a a technocratic government is something that should work, that more countries should have, and as far as I'm aware right now, zero countries have. Are you familiar with the idea of a technocratic government? Well, just like define it and then... Well, the, the, def- it. the definition of it is is you have a country, like the UK, for example, and this is the revolutionary idea. You hire the experts for the jobs. So, for example, for the Chancellor of the Exchequer, you hire an accountant. Um, for for the Prime Minister, you hire somebody who's got lots of experience in, in global challenges, who's worked all around the world, etc., etc. For the Defence Post, you hire someone with experience who is an expert in that, maybe a police officer, maybe an army general, something like that and so on and so on and so on. So a technocratic government is a government that is not dictated by party politics. It's not dictated... You know where this is going, don't you, Craig? (laughs) Somebody is going to think, well, actually, these people are biased and prejudiced. They can't help it. It's just how they're brought up. Why don't we defer all the decisions to an algorithm that we've all agreed upon? Yes, these are good humanitarian principles and you leave all the decisions to an algorithm because it's unbiased or it's, you know, you've, you've sort of tried to program out any of the bias. Uh, and so then you get to a stage, it's like, you know, um, um, the Matrix or um, uh, Terminator or whatever, where suddenly you've got these machines running the show. And, and actually, that's not so far-fetched because driverless cars will have to make a decision when it comes to an accident. So there'll be an, part of the algorithm will be thinking, well, who do I sacrifice? Who do I save? Well, it, m- much of politics, much of marketing, and much of everything is decided on algorithms right now. Um, have you seen House of Cards? No, I don't watch that. Um, it's fascinating. It's, it's on Netflix. It's all about American politics. It's got Kevin Spacey in it, and he's brilliant. And to what, I don't want to spoil it for anyone who's not seen it, but algorithms play a big feature in that. And actually, algorithms played a massive feature in the recent UK election because what the Conservatives were doing were placing adverts on Facebook. They were placing Facebook adverts to... Um, they were... they were, What's the term? They were placing adverts that basically uh, said that Jeremy Corbyn was evil. Um, this is a popular tactic in America where they, they run really offensive adverts. Right, against, so, doing, so a, a, a negative program. Yeah, so. yeah, really offensive adverts. But in the in the UK, in the we're not allowed to do that. So... If we put a billboard up, for example, the Conservatives are not allowed to put a billboard up that said Jeremy Corbyn is evil. But they can do that 
through Facebook advertising because it's a separate budget and it's not regulated by the political commission. So they was they're gaming the system. What a surprise! So they was running adverts on uh, on YouTube on Facebook that basically said he was evil. But what's more interesting about that is that they were using advertising algorithms to select their likely audience. The biased audience that would appreciate this kind of uh, message. Exactly. And in House of Cards, it goes one step further, that they're using algorithms to discover an audience and also using something very similar to Google. Obviously, Google's not in it because it's being painted in a bad light. They're using a search engine, a really popular search engine, to actually influence people's votes. So they've got an inside guy on this huge company and it's not far-fetched to think this happens now they they've got uh, an inside guy and he is basically when somebody googles for something it brings up the results that they want people to see and ultimately I've, I've, I've started to click on page two or page three of google result any search result page two or three and even to consider using something like duck duck go where it eliminates the obvious thing. And actually, I put a post on Facebook because I read about these sort of stories of what I mean. I put a post on Facebook that basically said I was never going to like anything again on Facebook. <laughs> That's and that and I haven't done since I posted that. I haven't liked anything. I've commented on people's posts, but I haven't liked them because that's what Facebook uses to think. What do they like? Well, they've told us. There it is. So we can push more stuff their way that we know they're going to like. So it's purely to to try and game the the, the system as it is. I can I can open up my laptop right now, and as Bill Hicks said, I'm in marketing, so I'm evil. But I can open up my laptop now, go onto Facebook's audience insights, and survey two million people to uh, two billion people. Sorry, not million to what they think they like. So I can go on their insights and Facebook opens up all 2 billion people, users, and you can say, right. You pay for that, do you? No, it's free. It's it's completely free. All you need is an advertising account on Facebook, which is also free. You sign up to an advertising account, go on to audience insights is one of their tools, and I can say, right, I want to find people who are interested in snooker, for example. And then it, it live it live um, filters down those results. That might be 2 million people. Then I can say, right, I want to see the married people. You click it again and it filters it down. And then you flick to the next tab and you can see what these people have liked. You can see their age ranges, the amount of money they make, what car they drive. And they've got all this data on it. Whether you think that's a bad thing or not, that's your personal thing. But they've got a ridiculous amount of data from 2 billion people. Oh, it's frightening. Yeah. That's so that, you know, I had, I would advise everyone not to like anything. In fact, really, I should close down these accounts and all my social media accounts. But uh, all technology is a double-edged sword. There are some really useful features and there's some really horrible uh, bad effects as well. So... I suppose you have to try and minimise the, the, the bad effects if you can. Yeah, and some people just argue that, well, I've got nothing to hide, so it doesn't really matter. My privacy doesn't really matter. That's what a lot of people say. So if you take Facebook, for example, I use Facebook, it's free. I know that I'm the product of Facebook. Yeah, but that's like, what was it, Snowden said, just because you haven't got anything to say doesn't mean to see, say that free speech shouldn't be allowed. 
Mm-hmm. It's a similar thing. Because, because you haven't got anything to hide. There might be other people who don't agree with some system or whatever who think, well, actually, I don't want it to be known that, you know, I'm working on this, for example. So, and, and, and corporations, I mean, Apple is one of the most secretive organisations in the world. Well, they claim to be. There was, well, there's a programme on last night. I don't know if you watched it about um, the, the advent of technology. And they, the guy visited where they're building the new Apple headquarters. And as soon as they turned up, trucks arrived and detectives and what are you doing? Get off, it's private land. But we're on a public road, Get blah, blah. We don't want to call the cops and all this kind of thing. And it's just, and and because they, they had a guy who was talking about the taxes that they that they paid because there's an assessment. He, his job was to assess what he thought the value of the company was and the buildings and to charge them a tax rate. And he says the difference between the two figures, the one that he came up with, billions, and the one that Apple came up with, millions, was a 99% difference. And the the uh, the commentator was like, how can you be so wildly inaccurate? It doesn't even, it just demonstrates the attitude of these corporations. Apple, the, sorry, go on. Well, the fact that they don't want to pay any tax in their home country tells you how they're going to behave with data, with uh, the privacy issue, with all that, you know. They are, to be fair to Apple, to, to give another side of the view, they're actually really good with privacy, or they claim to be really good with privacy. The things like um, they've got fingerprint scanners in their phones, they're actually locked down to the phone. It's never communicated back to Apple. Um, a lot, of, they're big on privacy, and they're actually trying to bring a new light to privacy to be fair to them that's what they claim that's well, what their marketing claims if, if you're really serious about your privacy get rid of your smartphone yeah. i don't have one deliberate <laughs> no i i don't i don't have one because it's it's basically a security device that you're voluntarily carrying around with you it knows exactly where you've been it can activate the microphone if it wants to listen in on some of your conversations and you don't know and etc 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 it's collecting all this data about it's it's terrifying so it's no i'm not having one i can look at my phone now and it tells me exactly where i've been for the last couple of years it probably tells you how healthy you are or unhealthy yeah. you are as well you yeah. know it's time to collect that well people are actually volunteering this data i i do I actually, I actually take a blood test every three months and send it off to a company to get my bloods analysed. And, and the future scenario will be that um, people will allow their phones to be connected to driverless cars, so that the car will know who's who's in it, and you know, give, perhaps give them privileges or whatever. A survival, their survival score might be rated higher because they know this is an important person. So, so when you start sharing data between the driverless cars and the phone, it's like, well, you've got a totalitarian state there, and people are volunteered to have it. It's it's a little bit like what insurance companies are doing with car insurance. You know how you can have that little black box fitted in your cars. Okay, yeah. You can you can have it's a black- to reduce your insurance exactly. Yeah. and and it says your driving style, whether you've braked too harsh, whether you've turned too quickly, whether you're driving too fast. Well, of course, the talk now is, well, let's implant these devices on into the human being, un- into the flesh. Now now you're on a, a dangerous road. Yeah, the, the, it, technology is a double-edged sword. I, it's, in on the one hand, it it's completely made me make money. It's what I make m- my money from, and I'm really interested in technology, and I love seeing where technology can go. And it's... It's fascinating to me, technology. It, the power of it is unbelievable. When you consider that an iPhone now has, 
is something ridiculous. It's something like um, a million times the power of what Apollo 13 had. It's ridiculous. These device devices and technology is just fascinating. And the fact that I'm sat here with an iPad and I can touch this screen and it's not magical. It's, it's nothing to me. I take the fact for granted that I'm sat here and I can put my finger on a screen and move things about on it. 20 years ago, 30 years ago, that's magical. That's the kind of things that were in films. And that's that um, Arthur C. Clarke quote now. He said, um, if you were to show the technology that you, you have today, to you know, if, if we saw technology from aliens, it would be indistinguishable from magic. We would just think it's, that's magic. And, and that's exactly what you've described. Someone from, you know, 50 years ago, show them that it's like, that is, that's voodoo, mate. You're evil or mm. whatever. So, yeah, I can understand that. And, yeah, and it's fascinating. And then even all that data tracking stuff, all of that is fascinating. And the, yes, some people might think it's evil. And I guess in some ways it might be considered evil. But a lot of that stuff, particularly for me, a lot of that stuff makes my life easier. And I use a lot of it to make my life easier because we can't argue that our brains are changing and there's been plenty of studies to prove this, that our brains are changing because of technology and the, the way that I do my job changes because of technology. And they've actually said that we're remembering less, we're remembering less and less and we actually remember the location of where something is stored rather than remembering the actual information. And I can see that in myself. I can definitely see that in myself. And also the other things about having shorter attention spans, that is without a doubt happened. It's already happened. And then uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of bad and good things about it. But the, the one thing that I don't like about technology, and this is particularly because of smartphones, is when you go out anywhere or when you sit in a restaurant, you're going to see 80% of people sat looking uh. at the phone. And... You, you or I could be in a restaurant right now and we could look at an identical set of people next to us who are both looking at the phone. But not only do they look at the phone, this is where it gets interesting, not only do they look at the phone, but they're doing it in a social aspect that I don't fully understand because I try to resist this a little bit, where they're actually talking to each other, but they're using the phones at the same time and they're also showing each other things from their own phone. So they're actually using the phones as kind of a social tool. You know, they... they I actually refuse to look. If someone wants to show me something, I refuse. If I'm in a social setting, it's like, why would I want to look at a small TV? I've come out of the house so I, I can avoid watching the TV. I've come to talk with these people and you want me to watch this little TV screen. Get out of here. So again, it's a principle that I have, because I don't have a smartphone anyway, so I, I can't say, oh, look, this is something. I can understand the temptation to do it, but it's wrong. So, and somebody needs to say, no, that's wrong. In fact, I was on a walk with my daughter, teenage daughter the other day. And w during the discussion, she it reminded her of something. And she got out her phone and she wanted to show me. And I said, I'm, I'm not looking at that. I'm sorry. We're on a walk. I want to enjoy the environment. I'll look at it when we get home, if it's that important to you, but not whilst we're on the walk. And uh, she was pissed off with it. But it's like, <laughs> okay, that's my dad, you know. So that's, that's what being a free thinker is. But you think... It's wrong, but is it just different? You know, society changes. Society changes. As as we get older, society changes and culture changes and technology changes. And with all those things brings people that act different that we don't recognise. And is it wrong or is it just that 
people that are coming through now, because technology is so invested in their lives, they're just different. They're, they've got a different way of communicating. It's not wrong. It's just different. And a lot of people's default communication now, which I'm sure you'll have experienced in, in presentation um, things, is text messages or, or writing. That's a lot of people's default communication. How long have we been talking now, Craig? And now we're in 14. And how often have we brought out a phone to show each other something on the screen? <laughs> We're under a bit of pressure, though. We can't, we can't... But the context is still important. This is what I mean about the context. We're having an, inter- an interesting discussion here. So an actual phone would be an intrusion. You know, we're actually in, being creative, we're discussing certain aspects and exploring whatever. And it's the same in a pub. Now, admittedly, if, you're, if your perception of being in a pub is just to continue working, then fair enough. But if someone's invited me out into this context of let's go to the pub and be social, then I interpret that as being what we're doing now. Let's have a conversation. Let's show emotion. Let's have a laugh and not rely on a phone or some technology to provide it for us. But I saw a group of probably about six six young girls, I'd say they were maybe 18 to 20 year old, and they were sat in a restaurant that I went to recently, a tapas restaurant, Every single one of them was on their phones. They were being social, but they were being social in the way that they know being social. They were all on the phones. They were all chatting to each other. They were all laughing to each other, but not a single one of them ever took the phone out of their hand. And I, I don't want to sound like an old man because I'm not even 30 yet, but that, to me, looking it was weird. But when you sit and reflect on it and think about it a little bit, it's not really wrong because... That's their life. You know, their life's not wrong. That's where the, that's the way that they communicate. That's the way they experience things. My son never leaves his bedroom. <laughs> no, literally. He's 24 hours a day, he's practically in his bedroom. If he's not sleeping, he's on the computer playing games. Now, to me, no matter how hot or beautiful the summer is, he never goes out. Now, to me, that's a bad sign for the future. Just the sheer physicality of it is a bad sign. If you're sat down most of the time looking at a... F- you're going to suffer. And so even... So just from that aspect, it's like, this is how I can justify saying, no, that's wrong. From all that we know about human health, mental health, physical health, it's about variety. It's about exercise. It's about diet. And so all these all these different things are, are important and you need to vary these these things. If you've got predominance of one particular activity, you're going to suffer. It's like if you restrict your diet to just one ingredient, you will suffer health issues. And it's like it's the same. If you spend the vast majority of your time just looking at the phone, your eyesight for a st- if you're not looking into the distance, which is the most restful um is, is the most restful to the eye, then your eyesight is going to suffer. So there's all these issues that you can say, well, look at this, you know, you're not exercising. So you're going to die sooner from diabetes, heart attack, whatever. All the evidence suggests that this next generation will die sooner than their parents. You know, all the previous generations, they've lived longer. This one isn't. Why is that? I agree with you. I agree with everything you're saying. But... That that is the generation that's coming up, and if you say that they may they may die 
before everybody else, maybe stem cell research is going to be to a point then where it doesn't matter how they live their life and they're going to just replace every part of the body when they get older. So if if virtual reality became so powerful and these machine learning algorithms could write a scenario a scenario for you every day that you thought that's amazing you think it'd be okay if people just voluntarily went into a persistent vegetative state and just experienced virtual reality that was amazing i don't think it'd be okay but that's that's me and my opinion's bias on that. But that's what happens in The Matrix. These people in The Matrix, in the film The Matrix, they don't know that they're effectively in virtual reality. And they come out of virtual reality and they realise that, uh, that they were in virtual reality. And the world outside of virtual reality is way worse than the world yep. they was experiencing in virtual reality. So, yeah, the, the, the main point I'm getting at is that the people communicate different and you you no doubt communicate different to how I communicate, and then younger people communicate very different to how we communicate. It's not necessarily a bad thing, and so, some of these studies that are coming out showing how people's brains are changing, I think are fascinating. And some people might say to me, oh, well, you can't remember things anymore. That's, surely that's a bad thing. But I remember where things are, and I don't see that as a bad thing. Some people might see that as a bad thing, but I don't see that as a bad thing because it's actually quite useful for my job because the amount of things that I need to know, the amount of technologies that I need to remember, there's no way that I could remember all those minute details of those things. So it's actually more useful for me to remember where it is in a library, basically, and then go to that point in that library and read it again. And I I 100% know that my, my uh, memory isn't as good as somebody who wouldn't have experienced the same job as I as, as I've got, but I'm okay with that. And then maybe in another thirty years' time, we're going to see. Well, we will in thirty years' time. We'll see what the true effects of all this kind of thing is. People said television were going to kill everybody. Well, I was I was going to think about further actually, Greg. Uh, I, I I I concede your point. You know, fire was a new technology. So you know, people sitting around a campfire telling stories. You could imagine the old uh, humans saying, this is going to end up with trouble. <laughs> it's no good. So, I, I, okay, maybe that it, then, it is just a different way of them socialising. And then there was the newspaper and then the radio and each one of those things, as the things have gone along, the different types of media have removed the social aspect from human beings more and more. Yeah, agreed. So you had the radio, people sat around and listened to the radio, you brought the TV along, people sat on watch the television people turned away from each other and then you've got the internet where people have the ability to find anything out whenever they want and that's brought about chat rooms and online gaming and everything and other things that we're never going to know about and then i guess the next is virtual reality where you are actually not physically present with another person and and with the past examples you you could either take it or leave it it was a one-way system the tv the newspaper it was all coming one way and you could either take it or leave it. The trouble with the internet now and the the whole data collection thing and the tracking, it's, not, it's a two-way system. And you're also being analysed and uh, measured. and so That's where the difference lies. It's so much more powerful, you know, on an exponential scale that that's why it needs to be carefully considered and, and worried about. Yeah the, the, yeah, the internet is ridiculously powerful. The, what's the old phrase? The medium is the message. 
which basically says that whatever medium it is, it ends up becoming, you know, the, a part of society. And the medium actually affects people in way more ways than we could ever understand as human beings. And we're seeing that with the internet, but we're also, what really excites me about the internet is how it's democratised, is that how you say it? Dem- democratised? I don't know how you say it. Yeah, I think, <laughs> that, I think I'll allow that. That word, yeah. <laughs> it's democratised publishing. It's democratised... Agreed. The, Agreed. It's democratised the idea of anybody being able to get the message out there. That is really exciting to me. And so many of my insights have been provided via the internet because it's not, there isn't a gatekeeper saying, this is the propaganda that we want you to consume. It's like, it's, it's completely open. It's like, okay, I can find the stuff that I'm particularly interested in. And I mean, the, the, the trick is then to verify what it is you're reading or seeing, whether it's that true or not. But most of them are just ideas, which you don't need to verify. Just someone saying, here's an idea. Why don't you consider this? It's like, ah, that is an interesting viewpoint. So, you know, uh, somebody could say, well, this is the accepted history of such and such an event. But then you find an article that says, no, this is my interpretation of it. Still using the same events that, like, for example, the the nuclear bomb that America dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. The accepted wisdom or history is that that was to end the Second World War. But actually, because I was looking at it again today and they're saying, no, actually, it's, it was the start of the Cold War. Because they were all, you know, as soon as Russia was going to declare war on Japan, they were going to give, in fact, Japan was suing for peace leading up to that. So they were already, they were already aware that we need to surrender. It was just an issue of, does the emperor continue or not? Blah, blah. So when you start reading, you think, this, actually, this gets more and more suspicious and then the motives behind the dropping of the bomb becomes even more frightening. There's no great humanitarian... It demonstrates, no, if people have power, they will abuse it. And, and another thing that I find really powerful about the internet is something that we take for granted now. If I want to publish something, if I want to put three paragraphs on the internet and I want everybody around the world to potentially be able to read that, the internet. That that I just go onto the internet, find a website to publish those information, that piece of information, and everybody in the world, well, people with an internet connection, can see it. Or if they don't have an internet connection, they can either go to a library or they can find an internet connection. Most people could find one in some way or another. Before the internet, there there was no there was no universal way to publish something privately like that. You had a newspaper or you you had to get on television or you could get on teletext or, you know. Although they still have to find the thing on the internet. They do. So you've got billions of people posting stuff all the... I mean, the the, the video content that's being posted every hour, you you can't possibly live long enough. So you've still got that problem of, well, how do you get people to see the... And and as soon as they start introducing a two-speed internet, that's the end of the window that we've... we, we've, we've experienced. Uh, so that's why I urge everyone to resist any attempt to slow down the internet for certain people and to have a priority for corporations or whatever. That is the death then of any kind of insight or p- possible uh, enlightenment of the uh, of, of society. Well, net neutrality, that, that is what it's all about. That's what they're fighting about in America. That's we've what- got to keep it, got to. Yeah, it's worth fight. it's worth taking guns on the street 
to protect it. That's what I'm saying. Mm, because that that is the beginning of the end. That well, you already see it in China. The, the the Great Firewall of China. They can only see particular information in China. And if we ended up finding ourselves in that situation at all, although to be fair, we already are in that situation a little bit because the government has the power to knock pirating websites off it's the not, internet. It's not even as sinister as that. Any Google search you do, it's already been, uh, you know, filtered and processed. And like we've just described, certain results will be presented to you. Um, and because we think, oh, it's Google, must be legit, must be an organic result. No, mate, no, it's, they're far more subtle than that. So you don't even need some sort of uh, uh, authoritarian government who are saying, right, we're going to... Just the way you operate, you know, Facebook, the news that you read on Facebook, it's all there, even... And what's worse, Craig, is that these corporations aren't being overseen by anyone. The, the worst thing about it, I think, is a, an ill-informed government because we're seeing we're seeing this a lot with in the UK. In fact, we're seeing it globally. But Theresa May specifically has come out several times saying she'd like to see the end of encryption. So, you know, if if anybody doesn't understand what encryption is, it's basically taking a piece of data and jumbling it up. You jumble it up to a point where it can't can't be changed back to something else. Um, it means that a two-way conversation, so you send a message from one end to another, it's encrypted in the middle, it's all jumbled up, no one can intercept that message. So encryption is a really important thing for so many things. It's used on banking. I was going to say, banking. that's how you do your accounts on the banks. Exactly. Uh, it's website. used online banking. It's used for loads of stuff that's really important on the internet. And recently, well, not recently, but in the last year or so, WhatsApp, so the, the popular messaging platform, they they introduced by default end-to-end encryption so that means that any message you send over whatsapp is completely encrypted and no government or anybody in the world can go through the middle of it and see what you've written nobody it's impossible that to me is amazing that's how it should be but people like theresa may and and also the us and other people who want to see what you're writing um they don't believe in encryption so they'd like to see encryption removed. Well, they the only internet. believe in encryption when they're using it. That's the difference, yeah. you know, because they're confidential. This is, you know, top top secret stuff. But any other plebs, it's like, oh, no, no, we need to see what's going on because of terrorism, of course. Well, people, people, they claim, this is what they claim in the news, that people use WhatsApp to organise terrorist attacks. You know, this is exactly the same argument that they used on for Blackberries. You remember the riots, the summer riots yeah, years ago? Blackberry Messenger. Exact. And the government didn't like it. And they wanted something done. And they they told Blackberry, didn't, didn't they say to Blackberry, we need a back door? They said that. I don't think they ever gave them it. Right. But that was, you could see even there, right, this is the start of it. It's, it's, a, it's now a constant war between the, uh, the authorities, the security forces who want access to everything, and people like us who just think, well, no, we just want, you know, we don't want to to be analysed all the time. Well, this is actually a, a good case study of what Apple did. So you may remember a couple of years ago, uh, the FBI got hold of an iPhone that they wanted yeah. to break into and Apple flat out refused to let them break into it because the FBI kept saying, we need a backdoor into your iPhones. But by making a backdoor for that one iPhone, there's the potential for that to be used for any iPhone in the world. And... Didn't, they, didn't the phone got broken into anyway? The FBI said they broke into that phone anyway. And they, they found didn't. fuck all on it. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't say how they broke into it, but they did. But, 
yeah, that is the kind of battle that these people are constantly having, that people don't understand these things, or they want to, they do understand it, but they want to gain access, but they don't want to let everybody else have access. And it happened with that, the whole PRISM thing. I don't know if you heard about the PRISM, the PRISM program. The PRISM program is an American um, information product, basically. It's a snooping product that the NSA claims to have, claims to have and claims to use. The, there was loads of leaked documents that went out on WikiLeaks that explained the full PRISM program. All right. And there's plenty of official partners that you're very aware of, people like Microsoft, Facebook. Google were rumoured, but Google never came out and said that they were part of it. Facebook and Microsoft never denied it, uh, but Google did. Apple were also meant to be part of this, so that the, basically any big information platform you can think of, they were all part of the PRISM program. And basically what the PRISM program was, or is, I believe it still exists, is that the NSA can gain access to any of these systems anytime they want. So they have been given a backdoor. They've been given a backdoor to Facebook, to, to Microsoft, to Google's. And Microsoft, when you think about Microsoft, that is a lot of products. That is Skype now that is practically every computer on the planet and there's also been rumors that since they introduced windows 10 they've introduced the voice recognition thing apparently uh, microsoft are recording all those voice recognition i don't know if there's any truth to it but there's heavy rumors around saying that they're using that for nefarious means and so there's all these organizations that are actually partnered with the nsa in america that the these NSA can snoop on any of your conversations at any time that you want. And going back to the prison experiment, if you've got an organisation that has this extreme power, who's overseeing that? Presumably, they will just follow the way of the, the guards and think, hey, we can abuse this. You know, hey, look, look, nude photographs of some celeb, let's post them on, anonymously. And, and the thing that people need to remember is that, you know, we're, we're kind of talking about ourselves as individuals you know perhaps I don't want anyone to know about my particular foible with whatever but seriously you've got a, a commercial interests who, who might be trying to develop a new product and they need the secrecy because it's in a delicate you know they, they, they haven't um, registered the patent yet or whatever well those people they have a legitimate reason for wanting privacy in all their communications it's like well no we're developing this new product and we don't want anyone to steal the idea or whatever. So, so you would think that corporations themselves, you know, some of them would, are small to medium sized businesses. They would, no, no, we want, we have to have this privacy. Otherwise, how can we uh, ensure that our products won't get uh, pirated or whatever? I think a, a lot of these kind of conversations, and I know you've got a lot of experience with this, a lot of these kind of conversations and stuff only ever happen in stand up comedy. A lot of people are only saying these things in stand-up comedy and I thought it'd be kind of a good point to talk about it a little bit because stand-up comedy fascinates me I, I, I love stand-up comedy I watch a lot of it um Stuart Lee is one of my favorite ever comedians but the reason I like Stuart Lee the most is because Stuart Lee isn't just trying to make people laugh uh, so, some some people see stand-up comedy as just a way to make people laugh they think that it's I'm getting on that stage and I'm there to make you laugh. Whereas Stuart Lee subverts that so much of the time that I remember him doing a, a big piece. Was it about the Iraq war or something like that? He did a really long, solemn piece for about 45 minutes 
that wasn't funny in the slightest. And (laughs) (laughs) apart from the punchline at the end after 45 minutes. And I think the power of stand-up comedy is fascinating for revolution and, you know, people rebelling against the system. I'll tell you what fascinates me there, Craig, is how context is absolutely crucial to that setup. It's like the art thing. If it's in an art gallery, the context is is paramount. You take that thing out of the art gallery, suddenly it's junk. Like you just said, so if someone's like, oh, it's a, it's a comedy gig. The fact that you've labelled it is comedy, but Stuart Lee turns up when he gives this diatribe against whatever, the, the audience thinking, right, well, I suppose I better find this amusing because it's supposed to be a comedy. So I just find that interesting how context is is so important to everything and the fact so as soon as you said oh it's a comedy people think oh it's jokes it's about jokes but it's just entertainment that's what you it's a conversation with the audience that tends to be amusing because it makes people feel good so if you go and see a comedian and all they do is tell you depressing stuff about this, uh, this the dystopia of the future the audience are going to think, actually, I'm, I, I wouldn't have called that a comedy event because it made me feel depressed, to be honest. <laughs> uh, so so the, how you label things, it's like with motivational speaking. If you were to label an event, this is a motivational event. People roll their eyes. Well, it's going to self-select. There'll be a certain a number of people saying, I'm going to that because I'm, you, you know, I want to be motivated and I'm motivating myself and I want, I'm good. So they will go. A lot of cynical people will just roll their eyes and think, oh, yeah, snake oil, whatever. But you see how the process works? It's self-selecting. And those people who go think, I want to be motivated, depending on the the skill of the, the speaker, they'll either be motivated or they won't. So, again, it just reaffirms how the context is absolutely crucial. One of the things that fascinates me most about stand-up comedy is offensive stand-up comedy. So people like Frankie Boyle and people like uh, Ricky Gervais. And I always remember what Ricky Gervais said. On, I don't know whether it was on one of his stand-ups or whether he just put it on Twitter or something like that. But he he said about offence, about the art, the act of being offended. And he was talking about people finding him offensive because he's a, he's a staunch atheist, Ricky Gervais, and he's always talking about religion and, you know, how he thinks it's it's all bollocks. And he, he was saying about uh, being offended. And he says, it's not my problem if you're offended. If you get offended by what I say, that's your problem to deal with. I'm just... I'm saying something. I, I, I don't know what's going to offend you or what's not going to offend you. So it's your problem to deal with. So I find that a really interesting way of looking at it. But you still see, you still see when stand-up, particularly an offensive stand-up comedian, they, they come out and they, they're known for being an offensive stand-up comedian and they say something offensive and it t- and some people think, oh, that's too far, that. But is it possible, is it really possible to go too far when you're, you're in that kind of environment? you 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 know you've gone to see an offensive comedian or an offensive speaker or whatever and you go in and you find something too far that's not the person on the stage's fault that's the thing that you've got to deal with internally and work out why am i offended you don't walk off in a huff do you because actually one of the trades people that uh, i use he was telling me he went to see frankie boyle and he, he, he couldn't stand it he left it was too far for him. So, it, but again, I, it comes back to the Shakespeare quote, doesn't it? You know, nothing is good or bad; only thinking makes it so. So, it depends what your what your position is, what your beliefs are. The thing is, you can't. Um, you've got to discuss it on a rational level. 
you can't allow emotion to get into it. As soon as you start allowing emotion, then it becomes something else. The only thing we've... It's like when I sort of look at society and uh, the development of it, and I think the only anchor we've got is the scientific method. It's the only thing we can point to and say, well, that will help to resolve certain issues. Not all of them, because the issues need to be able to be measured. That's why, but it's such a powerful mechanism for resolving ideas that you can point to it. As soon as you step outside of that realm, you just, you know, you're lost. You're just in the wilderness. But in terms of offence... The scientific method doesn't apply, does it? Well, this is what I'm saying. You can't. You can't actually apply. But you, you could still apply logic to it. So you could actually sit down and actually say, "What is it that you find offensive about that?" And then you go through it. What What are the pros and cons? What is it? Blah blah. Why do you find it offensive? Is it your your upbringing? Is it this or whatever? Blah blah. Why can't the idea just exist on its own? And you not to react to it. So you, you have got the mechanism of, well, let's have logic and, and rational to go through it. And then you can own it and it becomes less offensive because you've analysed it. That's why we analyse this. That's why we want to know how things work because then we disarm it. It's not magic anymore. It's not some powerful god operate. Oh no, it's thunder and we know about electricity and, and light. And, so that's all that it is. So actually a free thinker, a comedian who discusses these things is doing society a favour. They're raising these taboo subjects. And if they analyse it correctly and demonstrate the hypocrisy involved, then they're starting to own it. And once you start to own it, it becomes less dangerous, less threatening. So the audience think, oh yeah, actually that's just that's just me being perverse or biased or whatever. And and that's when you start to get understanding. Mm. It's swearing, I think, is a perfect example of that. Some people get offended by swearing. But what I always find fascinating is people who are offended by particular words, but not all of the swear words. So you, but you like know, cunt. Yeah. You said it before I had a chance to say it. No, sorry. <laughs> but, <laughs> it's, not, it's not a race, don't worry. <laughs> but yeah, that, you know, that particular word, cunt, people get ridiculously offended by that word, or they do not get ridiculously offended by that word, but it's four letters and it's referring to the female genitalia it's well actually there's there's been so many so much research on the uh, the provenance of it that you know sometimes it was i think it's referred to as a friend or or some mate (laughs) or something so it's it's actually was a positive thing at one time but no it's um again the context of society we're in it's been deemed no that is the most offensive word of all of them And, and it starts to then get this it's like um the n word you know, I'm, I'm even terrified to say it because I'm because I'm a white privileged Westerner. I'm not allowed to say it. But I remember reading that some of the book, like Tom, Uncle Tom's Cabin and stuff, where it's used, it's like every other sentence has the N word. And part of the thinking behind it was that's to diffuse it. Once you start to uh, to own it, it's like not it's not you aren't controlled by it anymore. And it's the same with with all the swear words. If, if everyone uses them and they become familiar, it's like, actually, it doesn't have the power anymore. Now, some people might complain about that because, you know, when they bang their toe on the corner of some table, they want that access to swear words that they can use and think, I feel better for that. But don't use it at any other time. So if you, if that's gone, it's like, well, what am I going to use then to, to alleviate this anger? 
I'll watch it. I think giving swear words a particular power, it just brings you back to George Orwell's 1984, that certain certain words have got more power than others. And if, if you use this or you're not allowed to use this in certain contexts, that, you know, that shapes more than just the actual word. It's shaping your thinking, which is scary. And I, I listened to another one of Joe Rogan's podcasts, actually, with a guy called Jordan Peterson, and he's a, a Canadian professor who fairly recently, I think it was about a year ago, he battled against his university. So he's a university professor, I'm not sure which one. Um, and they told him that they was, by law, going to be introducing new pronouns for people. So for transgender people, and also for people who call themselves non-binary people, so people who do not relate to either female or male. And they was going to bring in new words, new pronouns. They was going to bring it, I think one of them was Zim, spelt with an X, X-I-I-M, uh, and Zo is another one, X-O. Basically, it was bringing in new words, and he flat out refused. He said, no, I'm not going to be involved in this. And it wasn't because he doesn't think transgender people exist or non-binary exists or anything. His argument was much simpler, that once you start telling me the words that I have to use... You're controlling me. And it comes back to that 1984 thing that you're telling me what pronouns I'm allowed to use in certain situations. And that's insane. If if I don't use that pronoun, I can potentially get arrested. That's not a free society. You know, that 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 is an Orwellian society when you're being told to use a word and if you don't use it, you get punished by you lose your job or you get arrested. And that, that's a scary society to be in. And then... One other point I just wanted to bring up is, you know, the the word Burke? Yeah. Are you familiar with the history of it? No. Burke is actually one of the most offensive swear words in the world because it's actually old Cockney rhyming slang for cunt. But people don't know it. Burke cunt. That doesn't rhyme in my book. No, it doesn't rhyme. I'm just, I'm just sat here. This is the first time I've used my computer because I'm trying to find out the full Cockney rhyming slang for it and I can't remember it, but it's an old Cockney English word meaning cunt and I can't remember the full word, but it is and that's what it means. And people use that these days as kind of an, an off-the-cuff term. Actually, I, um, I worked out that core blimey is a corruption of God blind me. All right. Which was a curse that was used in, um, you know, centuries ago and was outlawed for, because it was blasphemous or something. So it's really interesting when you start to read the history of these. That, so everyone said, oh, caught by me. Oh, mate, that is such a, you know, an ancient, um, it was banned by law. It was such a, a curse. People wouldn't even. So, yeah, it's, it's, I, I can entirely believe that uh, these innocent words that we use. Actually, there's another phrase, isn't there? Nitty gritty that I've read some people are kind of, mate, you don't use that, you don't use that phrase. That is so offensive. Does that mean something offensive as well? Apparently, it's um, in the slave ships of the yore, the the slaves would be contained in the, bot- in the hull of the boat. And of course, they weren't allowed toilet facilities, they were chained to the thing. And the nitty gritty, I think, referred to that part of the boat. The, the re- so it's, it's actually offensive to certain cultures and this is what I've read. I don't know for sure. But I know that because some people say, no, you can't use that. Whereas I've, I've seen it on BBC. People have used it quite, you know, blithely on. So it, again, it comes back to the context. Do you know, because when I run my presentation course, I talk about how influential context is. And since I've been kind of coming up with examples to demonstrate it, I've realised actually 
everything is context. Everything. You can't ex- escape it. So you have to take that into account. And so we're talking about, uh, you know, you, you say, well, you're born with a blank slate. Actually, you're not. You're, you've got your genes to take into account. There's also scientific evidence that says when your mother is pregnant, the, fe- the, um, the fetus is asking the mother, what's it like out there? Because I need to prepare. If there's starvation, I need to prepare so that I can live on, on less. If there's a drought, etc., if there's disease, blah, blah, if it's all great, then I can prepare that part of my body that can flourish under... And that's, that's been shown to be, actually, that, that works. So you're not born with a blank slate. You aren't a blank slate. You are part of a continuum that's influenced by the context you're in. Do you believe that somebody is born either intelligent or unintelligent? I believe in the plasticity of the brain, as we've discussed. So someone could be, through uh, accident of birth, could be um, labelled as, well, they're stupid. They're stupid. But actually, no. Everyone... Is, probably has the same potential and it's the case or they'll have certain facilities because that's how evolution works it doesn't have this homogenous um species that you know one disease wipes out everyone so i believe that we some people do have skills that others can't get to that level one one thing that's interesting about that is that i remember reading a study a while ago the uh the jelly bean study You've probably seen it before where they they take kids who are two years old or very young and they sit them in front of four jelly beans. So they put them in a room with nothing else and they say, you can either have one jelly bean now. Oh, yes, I've heard that. Yeah, you can have one jelly bean now or we'll come back in 10 minutes and you can eat the other three. And they, they then took those children, tracked them through their entire life and saw where they were in 30 years' time. And with the American... I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> right, go on. But when they they got to 30 years' time, the idea of instant gratification versus delayed gratification in something that wasn't even taught to really young people actually completely dictated their life. So the people who were capable of waiting for 10 minutes were more successful. They had more money. They, you know, they in the traditional sense, they were more successful. The people who wanted to eat all the all the beans at the same time were less successful were poorer uh, that's fascinating because at that age that's not really been taught to them it's impossible it, it might have been suggested to them but they can't have internalized that and you know you, they always say that young kids are mostly um mostly use their id brain you, you know they, they, they do things because they want to do them they, they're not thinking about the 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 context behind it and they're yeah. not thinking about the consequences of their actions. Yeah, it's like it's that immaturity as well, isn't it? A lot of the criminals have been identified as just being immature, emotionally immature, so they immediately react. But the thing that uh, it, it sparked um, my attention to was the, the, the there are certain hardwired aspects to, to humans, I, I believe that. And one of them is inequality, fairness. Fairness is a concept that seems to, you know, be throughout humanity not just humans but chimpanzees as well they've actually discovered that chimpanzees understand fairness and will react against it and this is why i think inequality is such a huge issue in the world that intuitively everyone bridles against inequality things that are unfair and and they'll do, they'll do something about it eventually like the in the chimpanzees they refuse to cooperate because they felt they were being treated unfairly and that's what humans will do if they, like, 
Brexit, let's go back to Brexit again. The people who voted to leave, I, I genuinely believe they felt they were being treated unfairly. They weren't being acknowledged. It, they were people being unfair. And that's how they, dem- they... Here's an opportunity to demonstrate their anger. And that's what they did. And that's the result you're going to get. So as it goes on and the inequality increases, although globally it might be reducing, uh, you, it's going to bring out the worst in in people. I, th- I remember reading that everything in the world is based on a good versus evil story, regardless of whether it's fiction or whether it's truth. Every every kind of template for a film, every template conflict for a book, is the is the conflict. Yeah, because every- you can have a love story. Yeah. That, that still you know has, involves conflict or there's some mountain or some obstacle to overcome. So it's not necessarily good and evil. It's just there's there's got to be some obstacle that the protagonist has to overcome. That's the uh, and that's the kind of story that humans relate to more than anything else. You've got to pick a side, haven't you? Ultimately, well, the side that humans um, intuitively pick is the, is the side of the protagonist. The one you know the underdog is is the classic thing. Imagine a privileged white guy who's ultra-rich and becomes president of the... No, that's a bit too close to, to the uh, home. No, let's take another example where, you know, if somebody wins all the time, could get less. Why should I care about this particular person? It's always the, the underdog against all the odds. That, that's the story we respond to the most. That's why I liked The Wire, the TV show, so much. Uh, it was basically like every other typical detective show. It was based in Baltimore. It was about the Baltimore police fighting against drug crime, basically. That was the the core of the story. But what it did differently is that it almost equally, 50-50%, focused on the drug dealers versus the police. And the difference that that made to your perception of that story was massive because you could see why they were doing it. Again, context. You could see why they were doing it. And you could see whether, the, the, you know... Actually, actually, Craig, the, the whole drug issue, don't get me started on that, but I'll, I'll briefly mention that uh, throughout humanity, we've sought out drugs. You know, all the all the cave paintings, they were all high on whatever mushrooms they could find. Or Humans want drugs. It's, like, it's almost like it's hardwired. And the two drugs that we have that are legal are the two worst drugs in the world. Tobacco, alcohol. That cause endless amounts of problems for... Absolutely. And you've got... So so now we've just got all these these other drugs, the psychoactive drugs and whatever, actually makes people feel good. But no, the vested interests are such that they don't want to change stuff. And the the military-industrial complex, they benefit from the drugs war, all the security forces... So even though I bet you the vast majority of the the forces that are, are fighting drugs... Admit that actually, you know, uh, it would be better to legalise them. Far better. But, you know, the vested interests, they benefit from it. So we continue with this charade of a drugs war. Well, the, to come back to Bill Hicks again, he was talking about this 20, 25 years ago, say, saying that it's no coincidence, he put it in a funnier way, it's no coincidence that the worst drugs are legal and the ones that actually make you question reality and uh, get a higher state of mind and understand things better are all illegal because yeah. they, they don't want people understanding reality and seeing inequality for what it is and actually understanding everything better. Which is why when there's a revolution or a coup in a country, first thing they go for is for the TV station... And the first people up against the wall, intelligentsia. Don't want free thinkers. Don't want anybody questioning 
the, the the rule that we've imposed. So it's all there, you know. Throughout history, you've seen this being uh, being done. So I'm going to come back finally to a couple of your tweets. I picked I picked some interesting ones out, some that I've never considered, but one that I have. So let's start with the first tweet. So I'll say it in full. So. You said, with basic income, people could volunteer and create a service vastly superior to any commercial offering. That's disruptive. So we're talking about the idea of... um, I'm a big fan of basic income. I think it would be a terrific improvement in society. And what I realised was that... Just explain the idea a little bit more. So Basic income is where you're given a, a sum of money to live on every week or every month. No questions asked. So it would get rid of uh, benefit and, and means testing, that kind of thing. As soon as you hit age 18, boom, you get 12, 13,000 pounds a year or whatever, which means that you can you can pay rent, you can buy food, you can still go out, enjoy yourself, and you don't have to worry about working. That's the key. Because people know that there can be fewer and fewer jobs in the future, someone's going to do something. But what I find so exciting about it is that if you are no longer motivated by money, Everything, the whole landscape changes. Everything. It means if you're interested in doing podcasts and you've got enough money to be able to buy some equipment and you start putting together these podcasts and and you do such a fantastic job because you love it, you're passionate about meeting interesting people, putting this together, you spend the time and that product is going to be so much superior to someone who does it as a job just because it it might earn them some money. I completely agree with you and it's, the biggest thing that I, I, I think is really sad when people are doing a job that's taken up all their energy and all the time that uh, that they're not obsessed about, that they're not passionate about. And I hate to see that, that people are doing something for money just because they have to. And they they have to spend their free time doing something that they're passionate about and doing something, you, you know, that they enjoy. But- I, mean, I mean, imagine a, a nursing home, right, where it costs a fortune to be in that nursing home. And it's, it's, it's run by people who are paid to do the job. So quite often you get people who couldn't care less and there's no real care in there. You know, there's so many reports of, oh, they abused this and blah, blah. But now imagine you've got a nursing home where perhaps your parents are in there and you think, oh, I'll volunteer. And suddenly you've got this, you've got a nursing home that's run by people who care. That's the difference that it makes. And that's where I'm saying, if you had a choice between a commercial nursing home where it's it's for profit and but then there's a nursing home that volunteers who've got parents in there which one are you going to choose it's a no-brainer isn't it so that's what that's what i mean by that's that's dis- that's really disruptive because the entire world order we've got that's based on money would suddenly look threatened they can't wield the power that they previously did one on on that money thing one of the biggest things that i've discussed this with other people before that i think it's going to collapse you know, we we had the mortgage crisis, you know, we previous credit crunch and recession, and we're always going up and down in these. But I think the next one in the UK specifically is going to be student loans because oh, yeah. student loans are getting there higher. Is, in fact, there are universities going bust already, aren't they? Yeah, the university is going bust already. The student loans are getting higher and higher and higher. People are going to university paying £9,000 a year, and I think they've just upped the limit. But the most important thing about it is that these people are never going to pay these back because they can't. They, they couldn't afford to pay them back. But what it does do is give the government a kind of a little bit of a leash. A Leverage de- on them. A debt leash yeah. to, to keep somebody on. So they've they've left university. 
They're going into the world for the first time and they're already... 40,000 pounds in debt. Exactly. They've already got a a leash on them. They've already got the debt leash on them. And what it does is it institutionalises the idea of debt. I mean, I even heard talk of, because mortgages are so expensive now, of, of being able to kind of compound it with your children. So... If someone takes out a mortgage, it's like it's like part the extended family could be in debt as well. Or when they pass it on to their children, they pay off the mortgage. It's like this is indentured labour. It's going back to feudalism for Christ's sake. Yeah. And that also brings me to another one of your tweets that you said, I want a credit card that gives me interest free credit for one hundred years. That was a play on the idea of um how you Again, this idea of think about debt as a natural way of life and the whole student. I mean, it was a flippant remark, but I thought, actually, if if you're only going to live for so long, then you're going to care less, aren't you? You think, well, I've got interest rate of 100 years. I'll just go wild on it, you know, and I won't worry about it because I'll be dead. I don't have to care. So that was just playing on that idea, sort of proposing um, the uh, the concept there. But, you know, there are so many ideas that I sort of tweet in jest that then people point out, you know, this is actually happening. People have actually discussed, oh, right, great, yeah. It's often the case that uh, the, the most extreme, you know, outrageous idea you come up with, no, no, somebody's already thought of that. That's Well, when you just think about debt, when you think about the idea of credit, and you actually sit down and consider the money that people are making from providing credit, it's insane. The, you know, you could lend somebody £100 and they give you £200 back in six months' time. You've made 100% profit on doing literally nothing. The only thing you've done is lent them £100. And if you compound that and then make that way bigger into the terms of what banks are doing with mortgages and with huge Where they loans, just create the money. Yeah, yeah. Where, you, know, you go into a, a bank and say, I want a mortgage. All they do is type in £100,000 into their system. They've created a hundred. It's not, They're not taking it out of a shoebox. They're just creating it out of thin air. And then you start paying. So they just created that money. And, and people don't appreciate that. If, if, if the general public had a, an inkling of how the banking system, there would be, there would be riots. People would be outraged. They just don't appreciate the, the scam that it is effectively. I do struggle un- to understand world economics. Well, yeah. this is, this is another one of my favorite memes is that Thatcher was famous for introducing this idea of the household economy, budgeting for the household economy, which is fallacious. As soon as you start getting to a, a country that has a central bank, that entire analogy is redundant, is gone, is meaningless. It's nothing like a household economy. But she's portrayed, you know, she's put this through as a, as a piece of propaganda to make people think, oh, we need to put up with austerity because, you know, there's not enough income. It's bullshit, all bullshit. It absolutely is. And you've seen, since the Conservatives have been in power, for example, you've seen that people have started to consider, oh, maybe I'll wait for this. There isn't enough money to do this. And you saw this come to a head in the... <laughs> we've got we've got a sign at the the window that says I need to put something in the freezer. <laughs> we've been hogging the kitchen. <laughs> okay. Uh, anyway, we, yes. Anyway, go on, Craig. Uh, to- we, we've seen that... Um, do you want to let him in? <laughs> you can come in. Anyway, 
I presume you've got editing facilities you can yeah, get. Yeah, yeah, I'll just leave it running, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> it's a nice touch, that. Showing a bit of ingenuity there. <laughs> to, uh, a bit creative. <laughs> through the studio glass, as it were. So just to quickly go back to the idea of Thatcher, <laughs> the point I was trying to make was, yeah, in the, in the last... Uh, last conservative government they've brought about this idea of austerity they've branded the thing of austerity and now we've all got to tighten our belts it's our fault that the government's done things wrong it's not their fault it's our fault it wasn't Uh, the bankers that uh, brought it yeah yeah no of course it won't so that all came to a head I thought in the last general election when Jeremy Corbyn came out with a manifesto that was hugely positive uh, that's very very forward looking whether he could achieve it or not is not the not the point but he came out with something that was positive, that he said he was going to spend money, and most people went, he can't afford it. That, and as soon as I heard everybody saying that, I thought, the the right wing's won. The, the conservatives have won. They've changed everybody into thinking, we can't afford this stuff. We can't afford to change how, how, we, how we are. It's that household income analogy. It's all, it's all bullshit. But it's worked. It's obviously worked for them. Yeah, it has. And, and th- there's evidence out there, if you look for it, that spending money produces more prosperity. Yeah, the Keynesian approach, yeah, absolutely. That produces more prosperity. That's what Mussolini did, build roads, spend public money on building the... Yeah. You get everybody more positive about a situation that they're in. And, and the thing that they haven't actually thought through, Craig, is that if, if people have got less money, they've got less money to spend, which means they're not going to buy the products. Less tax. Exactly. So it's like it, any idiot could think, oh, actually, that ain't going to work. So you got, and yet people have bought it. I don't understand. Well, they haven't bought it. If they had bought it, they might have been able to tax it. But uh, <laughs> you see what you see what I'm, what I'm yeah. saying? It's like none of it makes sense. So, so it, but even if you start pointing out, well, logically, you're just digging a bigger hole. So, oh, are you an expert? We've we've had enough of experts. Thank you very much. We, yeah. It's madness. I, I tell you, it's like you're in a, we've wandered into an asylum, and you've no idea who's the doctor, who's the patient. Mm. <laughs> it's a very good analogy. And I want to finish on one final tweet, which is capitalism bars me. There, I've said it. That's that was your entire tweet. Basically, capitalism bars you. you. I mean, that is it's blasphemy to a lot of people, isn't it? Can you imagine? Somebody said, capitalism, I'm bored with it. But that, you know, ultimately, the reason I, I, I made that tweet was because, like, you watch a lot of films. Now, I've watched a few films, and invariably, I, I can spot the plot. I can describe the story arc to you, because Hollywood is a template. And you see who's going to die. And, and that's, what, that's what capitalism gives you. It, it tries to make money. It always wants to make a profit. So therefore, it's always going to produce something that it, it, it knows from past experience makes money. So all you get is like this, this enforcement of certain ideas, certain tropes, certain products. I mean, most of the su- products in the supermarket, there's only a handful of producers. There looks to be hundreds of products. That's because each producer makes scores of what looked to be different products. No, it's the same bloody product, different package. That's what it is. And that's what I really meant, that capitalism is predictable. And as a human being, you don't want that. You want novelty. You want new experiences. People say, well, no, capitalism can provide that. Look at all, you know, no, no, again, it's all predictable. Capitalism says, 
success, big cars, big house, and blah. But that doesn't that doesn't give you the variety. That doesn't give you the the creativity. You know, a bigger house is just a bigger house. It means more cleaning or you know more maintenance to do. It doesn't get better. It just gets bigger, and that's what people miss. They imagine, oh no, if you've got more money, for some reason you're happier. How does that, how can that work? You know, I mean, you were, we're, we're two of the richest people in the world, Craig. Literally, we are the richest people in the world. Top 1%, I think, aren't we? Probably even smaller than that. You know, um, we've got our own computers, cars, houses, well, we can, we've got free time, etc. It's like the privilege is unbelievable. Are you happy as a result? You must be ecstatic. Because all these people who are living in poverty must look up to you and think, you must be absolutely out of your mind with happiness. No, that's not how it works. Capitalism doesn't acknowledge the human psychology of how we appreciate things, the way we get inured to things. You know, it's, oh, I'm used to that now. It's something, And it doesn't acknowledge that. Yeah, yes, it's, it's, it's very true. And the, the idea that, what really fascinates me about capitalism particularly is when you look at people who do make a lot of money, so when you look, so take Facebook, so take Mark Zuckerberg, for example, he's one of the richest guys in the world and he's still presumably turning up to the office every day and working a job. He doesn't have to work because he's got plenty of money to enjoy. Why does he do that? Why does he still turn up? There's two answers to that. One, he's passionate about what he does, which I can accept. He just loves do it. He loves lyrics. Blah, blah, blah. Two, it's a numbers game. He's now in the league of richest person in the world. It becomes a numbers game. He can't possibly spend all the money that he, which is why philanthropy comes in then. It's like, oh, I see. We're now down to charity. If they decide, well, we'll decide to be charitable and let you, you know, which is outrageous, you know. So that, 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 that's what it is. That's all I can think is that their egos are so big. It's kind of, no, I want to be the richest person in the world. And then you take Apple that last year made $800 billion. The revenue, $800 billion. It makes them... It's uh, bigger than, than a lot of countries. It's big, one of the top countries in, the, in its GDP. Bigger than a lot of countries. And they've got a bigger cash reserve than the United States of America. And they still continue to make new products. They still continue to run a business like you'd expect any other business to run. They still want to make more money. And when you've got that amount of money that you can't even fathom, mm-hmm. why why do you continue to follow the same capitalist rules when you've got the option to do anything? They could stop making money tomorrow and survive for an endless amount of time. One of the nicest stories that I heard was... Um it was when I was setting up in business and hearing people to give advice, et cetera, et cetera. And they were talking about growth. Now, growth in the capitalist uh, system is the, is, it's inviable. Without growth, forget it, mate. It's like the very air that, they, that it breathes. And I read, this person was talking about a story about a guy who set up a business. Uh, I can't remember what the business was, but he had like a couple of employees he had some lovely clients, good payers, blah, blah. And some bank, you know, chat manager said, right, you know, do you want to borrow some money so that you can grow? And the guy said, I don't want to grow. I'm perfectly happy with what I've got. 
it's the perfect, I've got lovely employee, lovely customers. I've got enough money to do what I want to do. Why do I want to grow? And I thought that is, that's blasphemy. As far as the bank marriage is concerned, that's how, you know, you don't even mention that. And that's the problem with today's society, with capitalism. It's about, you've got to have growth. Otherwise it's, it's, it's death. Success is more money, bigger cars, bigger houses. That is the only way you measure success. And even though I know that, if I see somebody who turns up to, to me meeting them and they've got a nice car, you go, they must be doing well. Even though I know that they could just go lease that car and they could... Have well, they might have even done that and it's just debt. It just represents debt, mate. Yeah, you know? yeah. They, they might have even stole that car. But them coming to meet me in a nice car, in a Jaguar or whatever it is, I instantly think they're more successful than me. Yeah. And I can't help that. And that you know, that's what capitalism is ultimately, isn't it? A, a success barometer, but success that doesn't really matter. But intuitively, you know, actually, success is measured by doing what you want to do. If you've got the, if you're able to do what you actually want to do, that is the act the actual measure of success. If that person driving the, the fancy car has to go to work to pay for the car, whether they want to or not, that ain't success in my book. You know, my mate uh, rings me up during the day to have a long chat because he knows I'm generally at home and I've got the time to do it. The time is my own. Now, I've, I've engineered that. I've managed to make live, a living doing what I want to do. I've found the market that allows me to sell that particular skill or activity or whatever to that, that target market. But I enjoy doing what I do. And actually, it's, um, it's a virtuous circle because a lot of the people tell me how great the product is. It's only great because I love doing it. I love, I love delivering these presentation skills courses. I'm fascinated by it. And it comes across. It's not just a job that I think, oh, well, that, was, that seems like a way of earning a living. Because I keep hearing people say that's, you know, I've been in these other courses. It was nothing like well, of course not. It's, it's some company that just wants to make money out of you. And so they're going to do the least, the minimum that they need to, to satisfy. It's, it, I can't understand it, you know, it, which is why basic income, again, as soon as that comes in, that's like, that's the Trojan horse of capitalism. It, it's almost forced to bring it in because there ain't going to be jobs. And when people realise, actually, I can now do what I want to do. What is it that I want to do? What floats my boat? Oh, actually, it's doing this, this, this stuff, which in the past didn't pay and so wasn't encouraged. Now, suddenly, it's it's available and I'm feeling a lot happier for it. And so society as a general as a, will just improve and uh, people feel so much better for it. The hardest thing for someone to work out, though, is what they enjoy doing, isn't it? Which is why schools have to change. Instead of being suppressors of creativity, they have to be encouragers of it. So people will discover, oh, I love doing this. So I'll do this. Whatever, they, not as a job, but as a hobby, because, you know, we've got basic income. So however you, whatever word you use, as we've said, it's important to choose the right word. You know, your vocation, make that your vocation. Go and do that. Do what you love. Yeah. Find your passion. Which is what you're doing now. Yeah. And I'm doing as well. I love talking about ideas like this. Yeah. What a brilliant way to, uh, to wrap things up. Yeah, I think that's a good, do you want to say anything else towards the end? Do you want to product? buy my product? No, I'm <laughs> kidding. No, it's uh, no. It's been a pleasure chatting with you, Craig. And I, I encourage people to listen to this podcast and to open their. Be curious. 
That was the motto of Better Culture. Stay curious. That's how you stay young. That's how you stay interested. Uh, that's how you stay healthy. So listen now for all these, uh, these future podcasts. <laughs> Thank you very much. You're welcome. That was explosive, right? I hope you agree with me. I love that episode. I listened back to it just a couple of days ago before I released this today, and I loved it. Ivor Timtrack is such an interesting guy. He's got such an interesting kind of look on life, an interesting outlook on life, and he was a a fascinating guy to talk to, and I'll probably be definitely talking to him again on this podcast. So that was the first ever episode of Interesting Conversations. I hope you enjoyed it. I'm back in another two weeks' time, and now I'm going off to Disney World for two weeks, and this podcast is going to be released every two weeks anyway. So you're going to get two episodes a month, and that's where we're going to start with. Two episodes a month. I've got four episodes lined up already. I've got a million other guests that I need to interview yet. And I really love this format and I hope you do too. If you want to find out more about Ivor Timchak, I suggest you go to his website, which is timchak.com and I'll put a link to him in the show notes. I'll find him on Twitter and I'll put a link to him in the show notes for that as well. All that's left to say really is if you want to find out more about this podcast or I want to read anything else about any of it, go over to interestpodcast.com or find me on Twitter at interestpodcast. And that's it. I'll see you in two weeks' time. See you later.